When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Connecting to the big show. In three, two, one. I just think it's an enticement. It's not rocket science. It can be done. I truly believe it can. It's wanton destruction. It's also illegal. We're the one for Cork and ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 1850-715-996. Text or WhatsApp 083-396-9696. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The lines are live. Let's kickstart the conversation. This is The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM. I heard a story over the weekend where someone got a vaccination appointment by text message. All right. And they rang the HSE and said, can I change my appointment? Because I've got an appointment for pennies. I kid you not. But look, all that's over now and everybody's open. Pennies is open. They're all open this morning. Duns, Tesco's, all the non-essential Shops are open, all the small shops are open, all the bigger shops are open, the boutiques, everybody's open. And we will do a bit of run around the phones later on this morning, see how things are going, if there are any queues forming. Just And of course, the message is please be careful, sanitize the hands, wear the mask, keep the space. If the place is crowded, come back later. All of that. But that's for later. 1850-715-996. We're in the grip of a major a cyber security crisis in our country, in our health service. Our health service is paralysed by a Russian cyber security gang who are holding it to ransom and looking for, we're told, anything up to about 20 million. Now, there are those who are dismissing that figure, but it would not be an unrealistic figure for people like this uh, to look for. All of the newspapers, of course, tell us in their own way the examiner has cyber experts bid to prevent further ransomware attacks. This is that the HSE and the government's own team are now looking at how to get out of this one and avoid future attacks. Ongoing disruption to hospital services is the front page of the Echo. I normally don't go through the front page of the papers, as you know, but in a story like this, it's worth using it as context. Hacker may publish patient data online, says Minister. Um, much of the information held by HSE does not relate to patient conditions, says somebody else. Now, I don't know whether that's true. I don't know whether that's something that could happen. But the front page of the Irish Times 
is claiming that the hackers might publish patient data online. The Irish Independent says cyber experts are hunting now for hidden hacking in all departments, all government departments. The FBI has been called in to help investigate this attack on the health service. Daily Mirror says war on hackers. Ireland takes action over cyber gang as a second government department is hit. We now know the Department of Health was actually hit first, not the HSE. It's a lesser kind of a hit. It's not as damaging. And I think they found the source in the Department of Health, which is something of a relief. Russian gang in attack number two, says the Irish Sun. Department of Health is being held to ransom by the same Russian crime gang who targeted the HSE. The hack has set the health service back 20 years. Simon Coveney has said a government war room has been set up to fight back, adding this is a very serious attack. There was also many people saying over the weekend, the sage nodding of heads, we're not paying any ransom. It's cyber war. Fear that next targets pensions says the Irish Daily Mail. Now, we don't know what will happen next. We don't know who will be targeted next. All we know is that they got in to the health service. How did they get into the health service? How did they get into the Department of Health? Were they targeting us? Were they specifically looking at our health service? People were asking over the weekend. They were saying, come here now. What kind of a low life targets as a health service and blocks patient appointments and makes people's appointments get cancelled and all of that. What kind of a lowlife does that? Well, as we're about to learn, they don't know what they're targeting half the time. It's just that they can actually get in. In the world of cybersecurity, Bruce Schneier is one of the most sought-after global experts. He's a cryptographer, a computer security specialist and the author of around a dozen books on security and cybercrime. His website, Schneier on Security, is recognised as the leading resource in its field globally, and he lectures on security and public policy at Harvard University. Over the weekend, I had the unique opportunity to speak with Bruce Schneier about the security crisis now paralysing our health service. Bruce, thank you for taking time to be with us today. Can you explain for, for listeners what this is, what is ransomware and how does it get into a system? So for years, criminals have been trying to figure out how to make money by hacking other people's computers. And it turns out the data is most valuable to the people who own the computers. So hackers break in, they encrypt the data, and then they charge a ransom for you to get your data back. It's actually clever and it's really profitable. How do they get in? Now, a variety of ways. Uh, computers are hackable. They've been hackable for decades. They continue to be hackable. Generally, they get in through easy ways. I mean, these aren't uh, foreign governments largely. These are criminals. So they're using uh, vulnerabilities that haven't been patched or they're tricking you into uh, giving up your password so they can log in as you. They gain access somehow, usually automated And it's not usually targeted going after anybody and then hoping they get somebody good. So it could be something as simple as a person opening an email or or anything like that. They're not opening an email, but sometimes uh, clicking on an email attachment and sometimes uh, downloading software from a website. And these are all ways your computer can get infected. And uh, ransomware gangs will use a variety of techniques. I mean, their goal is volume. 
trying to infect everybody and then getting lucky once in a while. And occasionally it is, you know, the city of Baltimore, a pipeline in the United States, a hospital in the UK, and they can get significant money. Supposedly the pipeline, the U.S. paid a bunch of million dollars to the uh, ransomware gang. Now, that kind of answers one of my questions, because people have been saying over the weekend, why would you target a health service like as well as the health service executive, we now have news of a second infection, to use that word, in the Department of Health. That answers the question, why would you target a health service? They don't care. They're just waiting for something that they can get into. Right, they're not targeting. But health services are particularly vulnerable. U.S. also, a bunch of uh, hospitals have been the biggest of ransomware. Ransomware tends to target computers that are not patched. Like patching your computers, having good backups is pretty much a defense against ransomware. But a lot of embedded systems, like are in hospitals, can't be patched because of the way they're being used. They're not being patched regularly, so they're more vulnerable. So you will see hospitals get hacked more often than a random company because of that. I read an interview with you recently in which you effectively warned that like, it was only a matter of time before something like this happened, not just in Ireland, but, but pretty much anywhere. You're just there. That makes you a target. Right. This is targets of opportunity. These aren't directed. But you are a target if you don't have your patches up to date. You're a target if you have bad security hygiene. I mean, you can set your systems up not to be as vulnerable as others. But yes, these are all opportunistic targets. Bad system hygiene, bad security hygiene. Expand a little bit on that for me. Well, again, the uh, criminals are looking for the lowest hanging fruit. And they're, not gonna, they're not hacking companies that have very good security uh, software and systems because they can't and it's not worth the bother. They're looking for organizations, companies, networks that are sloppy, that haven't kept their patches up to date, that might not have the most uh, current versions of software, that aren't paying close attention, and, and they'll be the victims. And these aren't just organizations. These are individuals. Uh, you could be someone and your computer is uh, locked up, and you might be charged you know, $100 to uh, get your data back. Because the criminals know that you can't pay a lot. They're your family photos. You want them. And sometimes they even have uh, technical support to help you get your Bitcoin and pay the ransom. And when you pay your ransom, you get your data back because these criminal gangs want to be known for having good customer service. So the next people will pay. Crikey. Because over the weekend, the discussion here has been from our government, oh, we're not paying a ransom to anybody. Is that the right approach? This is a hard question. In the United States, we take that approach. The FBI says don't pay ransoms. But we have had cities that have not paid, and it's been 10 times the amount to clean things up. There have been cities that have paid. It's like any ransom. We in society want no one to pay the ransom, so the criminal business model becomes unprofitable. But when it's your data or when your child is kidnapped, you want to pay the ransom. So what needs to happen now, Bruce? Like, how does a state service or indeed any system target like this? How do you begin to respond? Again, this is going to be a question of pay or not pay. And it's going to be a financial decision. 
What data has been locked up? How important is it? Can we recover it another way? What will happen? Who will be harmed if we don't get it back? And they're going to make a decision. But really, the answer is to you know, two things, to go after these criminals, which we can do sometimes depending on what country they're in, and to improve security so that you're not an easy target. That's, and that's the next question. Like Once it is fixed by whatever means, like how do we prevent it happening again? What's the role of government in the state, for example, in, in blocking attacks like this? It's less the role of government and more the role of who's ever in charge of the network, who's ever funding network security to make sure it's a priority. I mean, it's easy to uh, skimp on security because you don't see it, but then you're the victim and, and it's expensive. And, and you're right about asking because there have been organizations that get targeted multiple times because they don't fix their problems once they've paid the ransom. They get ransomed again. So you really do need to keep updating and be aware of the level of security that you require and, and spend money on security, I think, seems to be the, the answer. It's vitally important. I mean, this is now the criminal business model on the Internet. It's worldwide and it's very profitable. And lots of very organized criminal organizations are getting involved in this. You wrote a book, Bruce, called Click Here to Kill Everybody, which I guess was a headline to, to buy the book. But in a world where we have now the Internet of Things, like this isn't something that affects corporations. It isn't something that affects government departments. This could affect any one of us sitting in our kitchen, using our computer, picking up our mobile phone to buy a pair of trousers. It can affect us all. How do we protect ourselves? It's even worse. It could affect your car. We have seen, not in the wild, but in, uh, in testing, successful ransomware against a home thermostat. So the Internet of Things means all of these devices that could be uh, locked up with ransomware. And, you know, you get up in the morning and you can't drive your car. That's a big deal. And, again, it's a matter of having good security. And things like your car, it's not going to be you. It's going to be the manufacturer that has to pay attention to that. But I do worry about ransomware against objects, against computerized things. Like, bring it down to a very personal thing. I'm sitting here in my home studio recording this call with you, uh, and I do my best with my security from my equipment. Is there more I could be doing? The only thing you need to do at that point is to have good backups. Now, you're probably okay, but if someone locks up your computer, if you have a backup, you're fine. You just restore from backup. So back up everything frequently is what you're saying back up and patches that's what we all should be doing bruce it's been great to get the benefit of your experience and your knowledge thank you so much for being with us on the opinion line yeah thanks for having me good luck that's bruce schneier speaking to me yesterday as this story was emerging over the weekend we've got a full list of what hospital services are affected across the city and county it's pretty much across the board the effects i'll get to those Shortly, but I also want to talk to one of our own locally based uh, security experts, Ronan Murphy from Smart Tech. We'll do that next. 1850 715 996. Can we just talk? The opinion line on Cork's 96 FM. With Dairy Made Premium Spread, 100% natural and made in Cork using West Cork Cream. The Cork's 96FM Giving for Living Radiothon. Raising money for Cork Cancer Services. 
Listen Thursday from 6am on Cork's 96FM. Now, Ronan Murphy has experience himself in dealing with cyber hackers, cyber security breaches, and indeed in negotiating with the people who would do this uh, to a computer system or an IT system. Ronan, good morning to you. Good morning, how are you doing? Good. Now, some people were sending in questions there during that recording with Bruce, but it, obviously it was pre-recorded. So, so I've got one or two questions that have come in that you may be able to help us with as we go through it. But the, the, the line from Bruce seems to say, look, sometimes you have no option but to pay. Yeah, um, I, didn't, I did not hear that interview. Um, I, look, I've, I've done a lot of media over the last three days and my number one message all the time is that I'm not an advocate for paying. I don't believe you should pay. Be under no illusion. When you do pay, you're, fu- you're funding criminal activity. Um, so it is, it is an easier option to pay, but I fundamentally believe it is the wrong option. Um, to Bruce's point, in many scenarios, you will find yourself where um, the powers that be believe that they have no choice. And that was witnessed last week in the US where a major piece of critical infrastructure, the Colonial Pipeline, was hacked. The US has a policy of not negotiating with terrorists, and they paid it. Mm-hmm. So it's, 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 it's I, th- I think, PJ, it's important to probably, you know, put this out there um, just to fully illustrate how profoundly important this attack is. This is the biggest cyber attack that has ever taken place on planet Earth. I mean, there has never been anything even close to how profoundly important this is. There was one cry in 2017 by the North Koreans. That was a zero-day attack. But that, that, the, the health services there recovered pretty quickly from that. This, 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 this is a much more nefarious um, attack, I would say. How deeply, and I don't know what contact you have with the actual day-to-day efforts for this, Ronan, but how deeply embedded is this problem? How, how deep into the system did they get they got very deep. It's um, we're very we're, we're, we we my 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 team in Smartech twenty four seven have not slept in four days, five days, twenty four hours a day, um, dealing with the fallout from this. They got in deep, and that's well documented. I'm not giving away any secrets by saying that. Um, the the ransomware gang in in Saint Petersburg have um, now come out saying that they've got a hands on on significant uh, quantities of data. They will threaten to public make that data public. They've affected all frontline services. So if you're going for dialysis or you're going for an operation or you're going for some sort of treatment, all of those systems have been affected. Um, the HSE operate to degree a hub and spoke spoke type model where centrally their services are, are are provided from data centers out to the various different hospital groups, and all of that has been interrupted. Um, it, 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 it's very deep, it's very serious, it's mm. extremely significant. You know, the information that they have access to, Ronan, is very sensitive information, the most sensitive personal information on tens of thousands of people. Would they really sell it on? Um, they have a reputation to uphold, PJ. I know that sounds a little bit crazy in saying that, but um, these guys don't bluff, right? I mean, if 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 they give you a, a, a ransom and if you pay, they will decrypt your data and they'll 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 uphold their reputation as being seen to be fair with you once mm. you pay the ransom. 
Um, conversely, if you don't pay, um, they have a reputation to uphold and they, 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 they will um, do what they say they will do. Have they the ability to identify, and I'm going to personalise it here, um, take me as an individual. I mean, within the HSE, I obviously have, have a file somewhere from in, in being involved with, you know, my interaction with the health service. Like, could they access my information, know it pertains to me, and use it against me? We don't know that, PJ, because there's there's millions and millions and millions of, of, of files across the HSE and thousands of terabytes of data storage. These guys have indicated that they've got 700 gigabit of data, which is very substantial and very significant. But we have no clue of what that data profile is, who's in it, what database is in it. I mean, if you get your treatments in CUH or some other hospital, then um, your file may reside in that specific location. So we just don't know the profile of the data which they're uh, claiming to have exfiltrated from the HSE. They're, they're, they're saying they've exfiltrated a significant volume of data. Uh, the profile of this gang... Um, is that they? That is how. That is their modus operandi. That is what they do. Mm. Um, so I don't, I don't believe they're bluffing okay. when they say that. And is there any way of knowing at this point in time, Ronan, what they have and what they don't have? Um, well, the HSE will know. I mean, that's it's going to be the, the HSE will have a good idea um, in the log analysis and the forensic investigation, which is taking place on what data has been has been mm. taken. So, so, so in terms um, of what's happening at the moment, because people are now wondering, well, okay, what? How do you go about fixing this? So, say a team like yours, you say your team hasn't hasn't slept in in, in four days. So, when you're confronted with an invasion like this, for that's what it is, when you're confronted with an invasion and a ransom demand, where do you start, Rona? So, it's there's, there's a number of things you have to do, right? So you start at the basics. So when you look at the health service executive, it's an enormous organisation. Uh, we're personally responsible for working with a number of the, what we would term as the larger hospitals, right? Um, thankfully, our hospitals, um, we, we've, we've kept them all secure. Um, our job is to make sure that those hospitals stay secure it's our job to go in and physically ensure that there's nobody lurking in there that's managed to find their way in through an interconnected system. Um, and we have to figure out a way to get a clean bill of health across those hospitals. Um, what you then have to do is, as they try to bring the HSE back up and stand it back up and get their house in order, they will have to ensure that everybody who reconnects up is is, is clean and that there's nobody managed to get from one, hop from one location into another location yeah. um, and then that they've got all of the monitoring capability almost let's say like CCTV for a digital realm, they have all of that capability enabled so that should any of the term we use is indicators of compromise, IOCs, should yeah. any of those stick their head up within a specific hospital or a healthcare unit that they're immediately identified and shut down. So is it as, is it as and this is putting it in extremely simple terms, Ronan, is it as simple as you shut everything down and then literally computer by computer, line by line, floor by floor, office by office, you come back and see where the problem is? Correct. Any idea where the problem is yet, do they know? Where do, how well, did it get know. in, do they know? Um, well, it's well documented how, how Conti 
exploit organisations is they social engineer somebody, so they fish them, they send an email, mm. somebody clicks but on it, that But it can email. be brought down to what that you can you identify? Well, there's yeah. laptop number yeah. one hundred and forty-five. That's where yeah. they got in. Yeah, forensically, it'll be they'll be able to trace it back to the point of entry. What's a little bit different here that's important to, to explain, PJ. Without, I'm going to try not to get technical on this, but just to describe it, the vast majority of ransomware attacks are automated, right? So there's no human intervention in them. You press mm-hmm. a button and off you go, right? The wildfire starts. This one is different insofar as it is controlled by them. So for once they get in, they establish a connection into the network and then they go to work. So they navigate their way around the network. They find out where all of your connections are. They understand where your data is. And then they steal a copy of the data and then they encrypt. Hence the the shutting down of everything. Correct. Yeah, these guys are more sophisticated than your average Joe Soap. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How long might this take, Ronan? It's bad. It's bad. Um, I think it'll take time. It's it's hard to, to fully know... Um, to fully to, to give an accurate timeline of of how it'll take, but it is bad. Does look? Does does? I think everyone is starting to see that now, and um, it's going to take time. PJ, I don't I don't know how long. And we, we, you're where are we looking at the severe disruption to patients running for this week, next week? Um, I think that's a given. I think I, I think I think that's that's a given. I mean, it's, it's look. I, I'm, I'm dealing with hospitals, and they're doing an incredible job. Mm-hmm. People on the ground inside mm-hmm. those hospitals. The, I mean, <clears throat> I, I logged off at two a.m. Um, last night, and there were. I, I, I checked my phone at at five thirty, and there was teams of people inside different hospitals who hadn't slept in since Friday, and they're still going. Um, and these hospitals haven't even been hit, mind you. These hospitals are hospitals. They're they're just forensically line by line checking every single component and operating mm. a facet of their organisation. Mm. Um, Co- a couple of things, Roland, before I let you go. One is, and this is definitely sort of a, a movie scenario. So I want to know: is it possible? Let's say, for example, they decided to get really nasty and go after things like life support. Could they do that? They've already done that. They've already done that. This is this is life or death, PJ. This does no be under no illusions here. This is life or death. This is the biggest cyber attack. I would hold on. Add. You're saying they have access to ICUs and stuff like that. This all of those systems that are running, whether it's dialysis or cancer treatment or swab analysis, all of those systems have been affected. Everything has been affected. Okay. We live in an interconnected world yes. now, where. Everything is relying on a system or a database or a measurement or a document or an electronic patient health record. Everything is connected. So it's... You know, the kind of movie situation, they can't do something like shut down... No. ...life heavy equipment, no? They're they're not going after people's pacemakers and and ventilators and stuff like that, right? This is a different conversation. If you launch an attack of this scale and this magnitude against the health service... The implications of the knock-on effects of systems operating smoothly is 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 just a okay. it's a natural fallout from this. Okay. Um, in terms of uh, staff, the the tens of thousands of staff, like some of them would do a simple thing like check their bank account details at work or maybe pay a bill 
uh, on their work computer, whether they're supposed to or not. Like, could these guys now have access to their bank accounts? No, 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 no. That's that, that. This is this is much bigger than that. Okay. This okay. Is, this isn't about you know hacking an individual. This is about taking down a health service. Sure. And could it could it affect contract. people's payroll? Oh God, yeah, absolutely. I mean, in, so in people life. might not get their wages this week. Well, I'm, I'm sure the I'm sure the HSE have so so. You have a couple of things, right? If you have payroll, I'm, I'm guessing payroll in individual hospitals is 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 isolated locally as opposed to centrally in the HSE. So I'm sure there's all of those hospitals are for the vast majority of the hospitals they're fine, right? They haven't been actually hit. Um, I'm sure the HSE will have will have issues there with their own payroll that they'll have to figure out for for that specific. Um, there are specific employees and I'm, I'm sure they have an incident response capability for that. Mm. Um, so I wouldn't say that all of the HSE will be, I wouldn't say that everyone in the health service in Ireland is going to have issues getting their wages. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm sure the HSE themselves have, have some challenges there um, okay. on, on how they're going to do that smoothly. But I, I look, I don't have any information around that. Okay, that's okay. That's okay, Ronan. You've, you've given us a great deal and thank you for it. Ronan Murphy from Smartech Penetration Test Against Security. Corkman, uh, one of the leading voices in Ireland in, in this field. Just, it's so big. This invasion, thank you, Ronan. This invasion is so big. It's toxic from the very start. Now, the one thing I ascertained from him there, and this was flying around at the weekend, and I wanted to ask him, Bruce Schneier is at a distance, which is why I didn't... They're not accessing vital equipment. They're not going to shut off your uncle's monitor. They're not going to shut down ventilators. They're not going to do that kind of thing. But they've disabled all of the IT that gets your MRI taken and the file being uploaded and all that. But the life-saving equipment that your aunt or your uncle or your mom or your dad or your brother or your sister or your cousin or your friend, that equipment is not in danger here. That's a relief to a lot of people and I really wanted to clarify that with Ronan Murphy. 1850 715 Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With dairy-made premium spread, 100% natural and made in Cork using West Cork cream. Simon Murdoch and the best music mix. Weekdays from midday on Cork's 96FM. I'm bringing you your favourite tunes to keep you company across the afternoon in Cork. Always best for competitions and giveaways. Oh, Simon, you are the sweetest. Yeah, flattery will get you everywhere. Simon, you're late. And sure, we'll bring you on for the chats as well. Little COVID baby boom. <laughs> so the people of Cork, they've been keeping busy, have they? Oh, they are. They're having great fun. <laughs> it's the only soundtrack you need in the afternoon in Cork. Simon Murdoch, midday to 4 p.m. With Sean Cusack Insurance's Kinsale, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. For motor, home, business, farm, life, and health insurance, cmig.ie. On Cork's 96 FM, the opinion line with PJ Coogan. Text or WhatsApp now, 083 396 9696. On Cork's 96 FM. Well, the various hospitals have been issuing uh, statements and issuing instructions to patients and and others over the weekend. Cork University Hospital say anyone with an outpatient's appointment, chemotherapy, surgery should come to the hospital unless they contact you to cancel. If you have an x-ray appointment, don't attend unless you are asked to come. Radiotherapy, 
is all cancelled. At CUMH Gynae Clinics, they've been cancelled today and tomorrow. Patients are also reminded access to normal systems are limited, so COH may not have access to your full suite of records. And labs are severely affected. Existing bloods from GPs won't be processed. Only emergency bloods are being processed. And the public is reminded that people should only attend the emergency department in genuine emergencies and that delays are likely as a result of the current IT situation. The hospital will advise if there's any change. Simple thing like if you go into the emergency department and something's happened to you, um, they may have met you before, but they don't have access to those records at the moment because the computers are shut down. So if you go in and you have, I don't know, twisted your ankle playing football or playing hurling or running, and they don't know anything about your medical history because it's shut down. They can't access it, so it's, it's that serious. Uh, all x-ray appointments for Monday at the South Infirmary have been cancelled. Uh, for all other services, this South says people should attend as planned. Bantry General Hospital has opened a patient helpline. I don't have it to hand, but we will try to get it. Uh, and also, here's a real-world example. A school at the centre of a COVID outbreak, this is according to the examiner, a school at the centre of a COVID outbreak says it may have to close over the coming days because the cyber attack has hampered contact tracing. This is a message went out Sunday night from the principal and chair of the board of management of Skull Rida in Rathcormac. Said they may have to advise parents not to send children in over the coming days because there's been a deterioration in the COVID situation at the school. A number of pupils were told last week to stay home and isolate there are confirmed case, cases in every class and among the staff. Uh, they have a serious outbreak. But because of the cyber attack, tracing and tracking and contacts are very, very difficult to nail down. The army, I think, are involved in contact tracing. Kim, you know, have stepped in over the weekend to help. But it's just every element of the health service, every every point of access is affected. Thank you. Bantry's hospital helpline is 087-787-1766. 087-787-1766. From 9 till 6 daily. 087-787-1716. More details on the 96FM News Website. Also, we've put our interview with Bruce Schneier up as a podcast extra. That's available now. Uh, one of the global authorities on cybersecurity and how these things happen and what might need to happen now. His thoughts on ransoms, interesting. Very interesting. It's policy not to. It's FBI policy. It's international policy not to. Moral and Murphy were saying to us that it is policy not to. But the direct vibe coming from Bruce Schneier is that these things need to be thought about very, very carefully. That interview up now on a podcast extra. Uh, Have they traced it back to the house or office where it started, says this call? No, not yet. That's what they're working on. As Ronan Murphy says, what you do is you shut everything down. Imagine that this was down to a room with 100 computers. Let's just make it this simple. This is down to a room, we'll say, with 100 computers in it. It got in through one of them. So you shut the whole thing down. You disconnect everything from the network. You shut the whole lot down and you start at number one. Number two. 
number three. And they will identify eventually how exactly it got in. But there's a lot of work in that, as you can imagine. Can you not put the machines into manual? Well, you see, you can't access the network. I know at the weekend of someone who was looking to do some case notes, just case notes on their work computer, not connected to the internet, just accessing their case notes within their work computer and was told, no, shut it down. Write them out now. Write them out. Keep them. Don't type them. We can't open the computer. This is just a word processor. Kevin says that Ronan has a, a valid point. How, or is it Ronan or Bruce has a valid point? How much is it going to rectify the damage versus the 20 million being asked for? What's worse is we're home to the tech world. How in the hell are we still using Windows 7? Oh yeah, that's Kevin. Well, that's the point that Bruce was making. Was that sometimes it may cost you more, a lot more, to fix it than the hackers are looking for to get out of your system and leave you alone. So it's, it's a financial management decision to be made. Everyone says don't pay. You don't want to pay. Nobody wants to pay. But as Bruce said also, if your child is kidnapped, the police will tell you we don't pay ransoms. But you'll want to pay. All of the shops are open again this morning. They've been closed for months and months and months. They closed before Christmas and they haven't opened since until today. Last week, a lot of the bigger shops had hundreds of people in and out on appointment only for click and collect. But this morning, it's everybody's doors are open. And obviously with the precautions of washing your hands or sanitizing your hands, covering your face, keeping your space. Not too many people in the shop, but it's great to be open again. Jean McGrath is with the baby shop, Wilton Shopping Centre. Jean, good morning. Morning, PJ. A big day. Yes, <laughs> finally. <laughs> um, we've been waiting for this day for a long time now, and we're just so delighted that we can finally open our doors properly to the public. Um, it's been a, I suppose it's been a very challenging probably year, but um, a very good year for us in another sense as well. Uh, we were able to continue um, with our full team because it's an online business. Right. But I think the big thing really is that getting doors open for the public, which we love the most really, you know. Mm. Online um, shopping is great, but you can't see it, you can't touch it, you can't check it out. You know, yesterday I was in the shop um, getting the place ready and uh, this young couple came over to the store and uh, they just had a baby, a premature baby. And they said, can we come in? And I said, look, it's sanitised, the mask is on, of course, come in and have a quick look. And they were, they were saying, oh, we've just been waiting for this moment, really, you know. And I, I turned around to my, my sister who was with me and I said, I said, you know, I said, this uh, this is what we missed. You know, we got such, the, the, the young mum was showing us a photograph of her new baby. Um, and we just said, this is what we love. We love the interaction with the, with the public. That's from our point of view. Yeah. But I suppose from a customer's point of view as well, you know, when we're selling baby clothes, um, you know, the styles, everybody likes to touch and feel the fabric of, of baby clothes, especially. You know, it's very hard to tell online what, what you're actually buying yeah. um, when it comes to this kind of thing. So are you busy so far? Um, yeah, well, we were we, we opened kind of on a kind of appointment only basis last week. So, mm. you know, we tipped away. Um, you know, obviously we're at a huge advantage having pennies next door to us. And um, so that brought people into the centre. Um, mm. 
you know, we don't expect for the first two days to be hugely busy because in our previous experience of opening up, um, it took about three or four days for people started to say, look, we'll hold off for a day or two. Mm-hmm. And then people start coming into it. We really see the pick up day five, day six. Yeah. And then it's back to normal, you know, and yeah. uh, we do find that we've picked up, we pick up an awful lot of business that we have lost over the last couple of months. Um, you know, especially in my field, um, you know, baby gifts, a lot of people haven't don't, don't um, use the internet. So they have had friends with three or four babies being born throughout the last couple yeah. of months. So they come in and they, their spend is higher, you yeah. know, which is which is great for us, really, you know. It is. The idea, I think, of opening up by appointment only last week was to take a bit, pre- a bit of pressure off and make sure that there wasn't a rush this morning. Do you think that worked? Um, I, I do, actually. You know, um, I know, like, I suppose one of the biggest... Um, you know, for us, it, in, being in Wilton, pennies was a massive factor, really, you know. Um, and I, and while I could see, um, it was done extremely well. Um, there was no panic. There was no cues. Um, everybody was happy. Everybody coming out of there happy. Um, so I do actually think it took it, it took the hysteria out of it, really, you know. Um, and I suppose allowing us to kind of open the doors. We, we kind of had the doors, we, the doors shut up, but we had a tape across it. And, you know, we could just make an appointment to come in. And it just, you know, we, we didn't do huge business. Um, but we did enough to kind of keep going and to get the place ready. And I think it's a, like, we've been closed for so long. Yeah. Um, you know, we had to take off um, Christmas, you know, from our shelves. You know, that was, you know, stocking that away till next year again, you know, like even just for a couple of months. It it was kind of surreal, really. Yes. Um, but, you know, we're, we're just thrilled, really, you oh, know. Yeah. Um, the Taoiseach has said, Jean, that this time when we open, we want to stay open. So we yeah. need to be really, really careful. I'm sure you'd agree. Absolutely. Um, and I do think this time around that uh, people are a lot more aware of, you know, we, I, I think if we spoke uh, this time last year, we wouldn't believe where we were, where we are now, like only reopening after five months shut. And I think, you know, it's been a big lesson for us all. Um, and I think that people are very cautious and very respectful of the people around them as well. Um, I think there is a huge advantage of having um, like the, the healthcare workers, um, the over 60s and now the 50s being vaccinated and the vulnerable. Um, that, just, that takes the pressure off. And, I, you know, it's lovely, especially in my business as well, a lot of our, our customers are our first-time grannies, you know, mm. that wouldn't have come in before, but are excited to come back in again. But I think, you know, there's, there's very much, even if you're vaccinated, people are masking up, they are respecting everyone's space. Um, and, you know, I think it's been a big learning curve and I yeah. really, I think we really realise that we really can't close, afford yeah. to shut up again. There's a, a determination out there to make sure that this is the last time. Jean, thank you very much and good luck with everything over the weeks and months to come. That's Jean McGrath from the Baby Shop at Wilton Shopping Centre. Let's go to Joan Lucy at Vibes and Scribes. Joan, good morning. Good to be open again. Good morning. Absolutely thrilled. I mean, it's been a nervous week, just like a bit like going back to school, sort of nervousness, but happy and excited as well. Mixed emotions. We're really looking forward to seeing our customers. And I suppose doing what we do best, look after our customers face to face, help them with their projects and their their interests. You were online, but it's not the same. Well, I'll tell you. The online was quite exciting in its own way because it grew a huge amount. It's not the same for the customer and maybe it's not the same for us, but it kept our business going. I was able to keep all my staff working for the whole of the time. We were busy the whole time and it just went from a quieter online shop to a very busy online shop and it encouraged us to extend our range. And we actually, around December, we put all our books from the bookshop online as well. So we made the most of what was a very challenging, difficult time. 
Mm-hmm. Same question as I asked Jean. You know, it's so important now that this is the last time you have to do this. Oh, well, I think so much so. I mean, I have to say, like, to keep our team together and just, you know, uh, like people did find the strain from the beginning. People were very worried about just travelling and, and public transport and coming out. But over the time now, I've noticed just within the staff, we're all a bit tired and a bit worn out. And this is giving us a lift, but I think people would be, you know, I'm not sure that they could send another big lockdown, you know, that mm. this lift now hopefully will pick us all up. We'll get a bit excited at the idea of being able to eat out and being able to meet our customers and, and just generally live again. Yeah. I know we spoke last year, Joan, about people being resistant to a thing like wearing a face covering. I think that's all gone now. Totally. Absolutely, totally. Even at Christmas when we opened for December. Like in the beginning when we opened up, you know, we had a little bit of a drama because people didn't want to wear the mask. And uh, like, or not people, just some people, sorry. But like I made the sense because I felt that my staff felt safer and I felt the customers would feel safer. Now, there was no problem at Christmas. People understood and knew it's for their own good and mm. it's for their, the person standing next to theirs good. You're, you're looking after yourself and you're looking after your neighbour. And that's how we need to be. Indeed, indeed. Good luck, Joan, with with the next couple of weeks and months. And here's hoping, thank you, here's hoping that this is, as the Taoiseach said, and if you, I'm not one for quoting the Taoiseach, as you know. In fact, I'm more inclined to have a pop off him from time to time. Um, as I get constantly reminded, um, often not, I might sometimes even be unfair, some people say. But what I will say is he said a couple of weeks ago on The Week in Politics that when we open this time, we want everything to stay open. This has to be the last time. And he went on to say, it's in all of our hands to make it the last time. So expand on that a bit, how we behave in the shop, how we behave when we can have a bite to eat, how we behave when we can get out to meet people again, how we can behave when we can travel to the four corners of Ireland as we can now. And I'm wondering, is there anywhere that you went this weekend? This weekend was kind of the first weekend you could go over the county bounds somewhere. Was there anywhere that you went that you haven't been for months? Anyone you saw that you haven't been for months? Let me know at uh, 083-396-9696. But we really, really do have to be so, so careful to make sure that this is the last time. And one thing we have to be really careful of, I've been talking to our friend Dr. John Campbell again uh, over the weekend about the Indian variant. This There's much talk about it in the news and much talk about it in Neffet. Friday night I think they said that there's been 40 odd cases. Now it's about 60 cases of the Indian variant. And over the weekend, I was talking to Dr. John Campbell. I asked him, should we be concerned? I'm afraid there is cause for concern, actually, PJ, on this one, because um, this India variant is spreading more quickly than, say, the UK variant. I'll let you hear that full interview later on this morning. The lines are live. And we're ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 1850-715-996. Text or WhatsApp 083-396-9696. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM. Huge reaction to our first hour this morning. Uh, global expert Bruce Schneier and one of the leading lights in Irish cybertech, Ronan Murphy, both with me 
in the first hour. I'll be joined by another leading expert in about 15 minutes time, Simon Woodworth from UCC about just where we go from here. There are rumours flying around this morning now that other bad guys are looking at Ireland because we're in a weakened state now. All of our resources are are focused on trying to sort this thing out, which leaves us open to other attacks. Just want to see if there is anything in that. Could we be... Could we, could we be massacred altogether uh, in, at, at the moment? Uh, how dangerous that might be. That's coming up in a little while. 1850-715-996. Veronica, uh, she rang the lads this morning and just wondering if we'd do it again for her because I know it's an old phone, but old phones have bunches of stuff on them. Somewhere between Toker and Eagle Valley, I lost my phone. All my details are on it, so I'm desperate to get it back. If anyone finds a white iPhone 5 SE with a battered case and a crack on the screen let me know I can't afford a new one it's an old phone it's not worth anything to a thief uh, but it's worth everything to Veronica so if you can help do let us know if you're out for a walk with the dog and you found it or out pushing the child in the buggy and you found it or out for a run and you found it give us a shout at 1850 715996. Just on the school situation with COVID, I saw a note to say that there's COVID in lots of schools now. I'm a bus escort, one child at close contact, but we must carry on as normal with six others in a tight space. No masks and no other parents. Not informed. I think it's crazy, but please don't read out my name. That's okay. We will be coming back to COVID later this morning because I had another conversation over the weekend with John Campbell, UK based Dr. John Campbell about this Indian variant of which we're now hearing so much. And John bases all his analysis on data and fact. He doesn't sensationalize. He doesn't overhype things. In fact, he does everything but. And he says we need to be concerned about this Indian variant. I'm afraid there is cause for concern, actually, PJ, on this one, because um, this India variant is spreading more quickly than, say, the UK variant. I'll let you hear that one a little bit later this morning. But first of all, something completely different as Monty Python used to say. Monty Python, look it up, ask your dad. A fleet of cargo bikes is to be stationed in the city and used on a free trial basis by shops and businesses and as community groups for a new form of sustainable transport. Frank Fitzgerald, good morning to you. Good morning, Peter. How are you? Good. I've seen pictures of these. Handy out. You put your shopping in it and cycle home. Yeah, yeah. They're they're very useful. Um, I suppose like cargo bikes have been around almost as long as bicycles have been. And we can all, I suppose, Im- remember the image of a butcher boy cycling around delivering meat to the various customers. Mm. Um, and But the form of, that, that form of, I suppose, cargo bikes... Uh, died out maybe 40 to 50 years ago I suppose more vans and cars came on the street but then cargo bikes have begun to gain popularity again that in the past 20 years particularly in mainland Europe and then they started to get gain traction here in Ireland in the last five years you'd say now obviously over time cargo bikes have greatly improved with the majority of them including electric assist motors which make it easier and quicker to travel around the city um, but the cargo bikes themselves, they can do almost anything. You, you, most of the cargo bikes that you see today going around Cork, 
mm. is used for transporting children around. You see uh, parents putting the kids in their front and cycling off to wherever they go. Yeah. Um, and using it instead of a car. Yeah. Um, I know that from the people that I speak to that use those forms of cargo bikes, they'd never go back. They, they have a sense of freedom that it gives them and the kids obviously enjoy being in the front of a bike. Yeah. Um, but we're starting to see them now as well uh, um, being used for businesses a lot more yeah. in like coffee shops, florists, and it's estimated that about 50% of all motorised trips that involve uh, transport of goods in cities could be shipped to cargo bikes yeah. and cycle. Bikes so who's going to be involved in this trial run? Um, well, at the moment, uh, we're very we're still at the very early stages of it, but um, we have been discussing the use of the cargo bikes with a number of bodies, such as Healthy Cities and our local enterprise office, with the aim of getting uh, local businesses on board. Um, it's the local businesses that I foresee as having the greatest use of the project. Um, as you're well aware, Cork City Council has invested a great deal in sustainable and active travel in the past year. And that will continue to do so with the investment in bikes, and particularly, let's say, in the South Mall, which will be due to be completed very shortly. So that will make it even more sense for people to, and businesses to use cargo bikes around the city. Mm. So, so who can get involved? Uh, anyone, I suppose. Like, and if it's a success... We'll, we'll roll them out permanently, I presume. An obvious question comes to mind, though. That's if, yeah. I, if I go into town, and this may seem to be a silly question, but bear with me. If I go into town on the bus and I buy me a few bits and pieces inside, say, in the English market, for argument's sake, mm-hmm. and I get a cargo bike to bring my stuff home, how do I get the bike back? Well, that uh, that's not how it was. we see this picture scheme working, but I know that there's other schemes um, in Europe that run a very similar yeah. that where you, you can take the bike and what happens is the host company, so it's quite often like a coffee shop or um, a bicycle shop that would host the cargo bike because right. what would happen there in that situation is they... The business that's hosting the bike gains the extra business of people coming in to get the bike, but they would then go along and collect it afterwards. I got you. I got you. So how will this one work then? So the way this scheme we're seeing working is that a business will take the cargo bike for a trial period made from three to six months. Sorry, no. Uh, And um, during that period, they would use that cargo bike instead of a van to do their deliveries of goods or services. Right. So let's just say, for example, you take a, a, someone in the English market, if they were delivering sandwiches, that they would just pack up their lunches and cycle around the city delivering the lunches to the different offices and places around the city. Or if it's uh, one of the big butchers or fishmongers inside in the English market, that they could pack everything onto the back of the bike and cycle around to the different restaurants around the city. And gotcha. then... They would have that for, as I said, the three to six month period. And then hopefully after that, they'll see that, yeah, working with a cargo bike is a success and that's something that they would like to continue on. Okay, we'll see where it goes then. Frank Fitzgerald, who's the Sustainable Travel and Road Safety Awareness Officer with Cork City Council. 1850-715-996. Whether we like it or not, we're going to be doing an awful lot more on two wheels than we do on four in the near future. 1850-715-996. Totally apropos of nothing, but it did come in. Carla says, I was in West Cork yesterday, in Bantry. The public toilet is disgraceful. 
the sanitizer was broken and the businesses wouldn't let people in due to COVID. We did this a couple of weeks ago where we were around talking about public toilets and bins and stuff around the county. And you get sort of varying reports from different places of, oh, it was grand, it was clean, it was... And then you get something like that from Bantry, public toilet disgraceful, sanitizer broken. And then the businesses, and you can't blame people at the moment. Businesses not letting anybody in to use the business toilet for fear of COVID. So just be be careful of that one, as they say. 1850-715-996. The Bantry General Hospital helpline for anybody who's worried about the effects of the hack on their systems and their services. 86 787-1766. That's an update an updated helpline number. 086-787-1766. If you need to contact Bantry Hospital with regard to something that might be affected by the hack of the HSE systems. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With dairy-made premium spread, 100% natural and made in Cork using West Cork cream. Simon Murdoch and the best music mix. Weekdays from midday on Cork's 96FM. Monday afternoon at work, working from the kitchen table or in the car, nipping out to do a bit of retail therapy. I hope you get through the day with the biggest tunes and sure we'll have a bit of a laugh on the radio as well. See you straight after the Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. Got an email to the show from Dr. Dr. Simon Woodworth, who's a lecturer in business and information systems at UCC, to maybe take this conversation on a little bit further again. The situation with the HSE uh, hack. It's an awful word. I don't like the word, but, but it's what's going on. The HSE has been almost entirely disabled by what is going on with these uh, cyber ransomware terrorists, I guess, is what they are. Simon, good morning to you. Good morning, PJ. And yes, hack is an awful word, but it is quite an apt description for the damage that has been done to the HSE systems over the last few days. Mm. Like Ronan's words are, are, are very worrying. Like this is very, very deep. Yes, it is very deep. Um, the, um, the Wizard Spiders group are using a very sophisticated form of ransomware called Conti, which is described as a human-operated ransomware by Microsoft, which means it's not just a piece of nasty software they've dumped into the HSE systems. It's one that they have managed into the HSE systems. And it's no secret now, and I think Ronan mentioned it already, that in fact they've been inside the HSE's network for um, a few days at least, if not a week or two. Um, and they would have managed that software to, to move it into as many corners of their network as possible. So it does maximize damage. Now Bruce Snyder's point with regard to how these things work is they're not necessarily targeting something like the HSE but they they find a way in then they're in yeah, they, yeah it, it, these things tend to be opportunistic. There's no reason to believe uh, right now that the HSC um, w- was selected as a particular target. The only thing that might make the HSC attractive is that they have a very diverse IT network. They have a lots of systems, some of them are old, and it might have looked like an interesting target for um, this particular group because... Could they have spotted weaknesses like... 
they could because they've spotted weaknesses and also because then once they're in there, it provides maybe some interesting opportunities for them to sharpen their skills at the HSEs and our expense, of course. But I looked at the Conti ransomware website in the dark web. In fact, I've been looking at it about once a day using a protected machine. Um, and so far, they haven't published anything there about the HSC, but they've attacked quite a diverse range of targets. You know, you're going from, you know, a local county administrations in the US to a butchers in Australia and things like that. So they're highly opportunistic. They're obviously just going, let's see what we can find here and here. Oh, here's a weakness. Or here's an employee who's clicked on that email they shouldn't. Let's get in here. It does seem quite opportunistic rather than... You're, you're specifically targeted. Where do you stand on ransoms here, Simon? This, this is a question that will be causing all sorts of headaches for people inside the HSE and the National Cybersecurity Centre. Do we pay the ransom and get the data back and keep going? And the problem with that is, is if you pay the ransom, you are economically justifying ransomware attacks as a business. There's an economic model at play here. If, if the only way to get the data back is to pay the ransom, then people will pay the ransom, which means there is profit in this sort of criminal activity. Yeah. Now, I, I think the HSE and Michal Martin have been quite correct to say we won't pay the ransom, and I'm hoping they don't. But, you know, the problem here is it will take a number of days, um, not sure how many days yet, I'd say we'll be into next week by the, before the systems themselves have been scrubbed clean and restored. But then all you have at the end of that is a whole bunch of empty systems. Where's your data? How are you going to recover your patient records? And mm. that's where the difficulty starts. Yeah. Um, Bruce was making the point, and he wasn't yeah. specifically referring to, to HSE, because obviously yeah. he's at a remove, but, but in terms of what he was saying, that sometimes it might actually cost you an awful lot more to fix it. And it's purely an economic financial decision. Yes, and that's a decision that sort of companies might make when they're beholden to their shareholders and when they just look at the cost of... um the cost of paying the ransom versus the cost of rebuilding everything from scratch and they might go with whatever the smaller sum of money is. Now the HSE is not a commercial organisation, it's a state body. Um, ultimately, if a ransom is paid, it's going to come out of the exchequer, which means out of the taxpayer's pocket. And um, you'll that's it's probably going to end up being a political decision, which of course then has ramifications of its own. My personal preference is they don't pay the ransom and yeah. figure out some way, other way of sorting this yeah. out. I think, every, I, I think everybody yeah. would, would, would feel yeah. that way. You, you made yeah. a number of points in your email, yeah. um, Simon, that I wanted to touch upon. First of all, yeah. we stressed here, having discussed it with Ronan, like things like life support machines, cardiac monitors... They're yeah. not going to shut those down. That is not going to happen. No, that's not going to happen. Most, some of those machines may be connected to the network to transmit data. So, I mean, for instance, I have some familiarity with some of Phib's machines because I do research work in the maternity hospital um, as part of my job. And th those machines are designed to transmit data into the network about a patient's you know, state of health. But more often than not, at the moment, those aren't connected. And even if they are, it, you, you just pull the plug and keep going. It's also highly, highly unlikely that the ransomware would have worked its way into those machines. They're quite different from your standard Windows server or your Windows desktop PC. So I would, I would be reasonably comfortable saying the risk of those machines being damaged is pretty low. What are the chances that the, the data that is harvested 
by this hack could become saleable elsewhere? Um, I'm not sure. It has records of monetary value in the United, United States. There's already evidence to suggest that people's private health records have been sold for money and have then been used to fraudulently procure very expensive health treatments. So there's money that way through it. I don't think that model works here in Ireland. Um, um, so I'm a little bit at a loss to sort of say exactly of what value health records could have here. There's always the possibility of blackmail, but there's, there's a fair bit of work in that, in that somebody then will have to trawl through all the health records, pick out the pick out suitable right. targets and start going after them. These guys just want to get on to the next the next. No, hack. they want to get on to the next one. So it may just be the whole blackmail thing. Somebody may try it, but th- there's a lot of work involved. And again, the economics may not work in their favour. Yeah. Now, with regard to... Uh, Getting this fixed and however long it takes and preferably, like you said, not not paying a ransom, it will cost what it costs and take as long as it takes. What do you got to do then? What you're going to do then is look at what the underlying causes of this happening in the first place are. Now, it's, it's easy to blame the HSE and say, oh, you know, do you not have your antivirus up to date and stuff like that? But to defend against a sophisticated attack like this requires what's called a multi-layered defense, um, which Ronan and Bruce would know a lot about. So to actually protect yourself against this, you have to have a decent firewall. You absolutely have to have antivirus software. You have to design your network in a way that um, this sort of malware can't, ransomware cannot spread to the system and your staff have to be educated. Now, if you look at the way the HSCIT budget is done for this year and they published their budget in February, the overall budget was €20 billion, which is a lot of money to everybody. And then if you look at the IT budget, which includes a provision for COVID-19 specifics, it's 120 million euro. And then there's a specific security project within that for 2 million euro. Now, my colleagues and I in the business school, um, in Cork University Business School, would be would have access to academic material and also consultancy reports that suggest that typically in a health organisation, your IT expenditure is between 3 and about 5 percent of turnover. So, cut a long story short, their IT budget should in fact be at minimum 600 million euro and perhaps as much as 1 billion euro per year. And wow. then the, yes, and the security budget then as a proportion of that probably comes in at around 35 million euro. Now, you can imagine how that's going to sit in terms of the Department of Health and the Department of Finance having a chat and are we all going to pay more taxes to cover this Personally, I cheerfully would, um, mm. because we can't afford to have this happen again. And it will happen again if we don't you know, restructure the way we finance our IT and security in our health sector and elsewhere. Don't forget the Department of Health was attacked. Who else is vulnerable? Well, on that, on that subject, I'm seeing reports coming in or rumours circulating, is probably the best way, yeah. that, well, we're now weakened and we're in a weakened state. Does that leave us open to other nefarious gangs to, you know, take advantage? It depends how much these gangs share information with each other. But typically a a good hacking group, and I I use the word good as in skilled here, 
you know, if they've if they've identified weaknesses in the Department of Health and the HSC, and if these are government-owned systems, they'll make some reasonable assumptions about the state of similar systems elsewhere in the country, and they could work their way through them. Um, if they do a little bit more research, they will discover that national policy in cybersecurity is a little bit shaky in the sense that, for instance, there is no currently no head of the national cybersecurity. Um, yeah, I saw people tweeting sector. about that yesterday, Simon. Tell me more. There, there's no head. The, the salary they're offering is €89,000. Now, that sounds like an lot of money. It's more than twice the industrial average. But the reality is, is to, to and, and, and I'm going to sound like the banks now, but the reality is, is to attract somebody of suitable calibre for, for that particular position, they're going to have to offer a lot more than €89,000 um, for a position like that. So the National Cyber Security Centre doesn't have a head. I have heard that they don't have a permanent you know, physical location, which maybe doesn't matter as much in COVID-19 times. So it, it does look a little bit to an outsider, at least, that we're not taking this stuff seriously. Yeah, that does look what it, that uh, that shouts out that we're not taking it seriously. I mean, if the figures yeah. you give in your email, I, what we're spending is a fraction of what good practice says we should. Yes, and you see, the, the dilemma for the HSE there is that somebody will say, you're going to spend a billion on IT, and that's going to take a billion away from vital patient services. But the, the, what everybody needs to understand is we're not just talking about a bunch of PCs on desks. Those PCs are the patient services, the software that runs through them, the data that runs through them. All of that supports the vital work at the HSE, and it's a part of that vital work. And we can't just dismiss it and try and keep the cost of it to a minimum. Mm. Just a, a question that came in. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Over the weekend, I, I heard of a person... An employee within the services, I won't narrow it down any further than that, who is working from home at the moment and who wanted to put in some case notes. Yes. And was told under no circumstances, write them down. Yep, that's correct. Write them down. And I'll tell you what's happening. That's really extreme, Simon. 
It is extreme. They were using the word processor, like they weren't exactly going to email them to anybody, you know? It doesn't matter. The, um, and, and, and I suspect they've been extreme just to make sure there's absolutely no doubt about what you can or can't do. And the other thing is, is to try, if, if they were going to be more nuanced about this, there's a danger some people will misunderstand. I'll give you an example. I have research serf- servers in the Infant Centre in Cork University Maternity Hospital. They were highly unlikely to be affected by this at all because they're not windows for a start. Um, but they were all shut down on, on Saturday and I have a research project which was supposed to help pregnant women manage their blood pressure at home, which unfortunately is on hold now um, um, while uh, we figure out how to get those servers back up and running safely. The one thing I would say to anybody listening who's registered on the project is you can go ahead and take your blood pressure readings on your mobile phone. They'll be stored on the phone safely and securely until such time as we're up and running again. Um, but um, So what they've done is anything that has any potential to be connected to a HSA computer in any way whatsoever, they've told people don't use it. So we've been instructed in UCC, if we're doing work with the HSC, if we've got computers that connect to HSC networks, we're not to connect to the UCC network. Because the last thing you want is it getting in to your end. Yeah, yeah. we don't want to get in at our end. We're not entirely sure yet of the method of propagation. Um, and you know, it's like going back to the coronavirus 12, 18 months ago when we were not sure how it propagates and until they have precisely characterised the ransomware and how it spreads. They have to act out in an abundance of caution and keep everything switched off until it's scrubbed clean. We are looking at at least a week, aren't we, Simon? We're looking at at least a week. I think it's safe to say that now before the basic systems are, are, are up and running, which means they can start to get back to business, but they will still have the problem of figuring out how to get the patient data back. That's the big problem. Okay, all right. Um, and that, that, of course, is, is a question for when the computers are working. Um, and that's, yeah, when the computer's working. Yeah, so as I said, there's, there's two basic stages of recovery. Get all the computers working and clean. Keep a close eye on the network for a day or two to make sure nothing suddenly springs up and starts infecting it again. And then restore the data. And it's the restore the data bit is where the questions about paying ransoms come in and how good the backups are and things like that. And those are questions that the HSE, guided by the NCSC and external mm. um, you know, organisations, will be working through like today and the next few days. You would hope against hope against hope again that they haven't gotten into the backups. One would hope that they haven't got into the backups, but what I will say about that is that it is a characteristic of some ransomware that they will attempt at least to try and compromise the backups. Now, I have no evidence that that's happened in this case, right. but it, it would be a concern, which means that at very least, you then have to check your backups very carefully to make sure they're not infected as well. All right, listen, leave it there for now. Thank you very much once again. Dr. Simon Woodworth, his lecturer in business information systems uh, at UCC, deals in enterprise systems, health information, mobile computing and data analysis. And many different research projects going on. And again, we, we are dealing with the big the big guns this morning in terms of the expertise here this is serious lads can we just talk the opinion line on Corks 96 fm with dairy made premium spread 100% natural and made in cork using west cork cream 
Oh, that's a big brother. He was great. He was a proper big brother. He seemed almost like our dad, like just really sensible. How did he find out that he had cancer? He actually went to Spain to visit my parents. They went to Spain for the entire summer. You know, they hadn't seen him in a while, so they noticed a big change in him, that he'd lost a lot of weight. He had been going to the gym, you know, so I think we weren't taking notice of that, but when they hadn't seen him in weeks, they were like, no, something's not right. The Corks 96 FM Giving for Living Radiothon. Listen Thursday from 6 a.m. on Corks 96 FM. A text we got earlier on about the public toilets in Bantry not being up to scratch. Uh, yesterday, the opposite. Head down to Baltimore. William says whoever is in charge of public toilets in Baltimore. We were there yesterday. They're pristine. I was so impressed, I thought the first thing I'm going to do in the morning is ring PJ Coogan on the opinion line and give a shout-out to whoever is responsible for the toilets in Baltimore and say well done to them. William, thank you for that. 1850-715-996. Now, it is Network Cork's selection process for the Businesswoman of the Year is underway again. Uh, Barbara Nugent is their president. Barbara, good morning. Good morning. How are you this morning? Good, good. Virtual last year and virtual again this year, I guess. Virtual again this year. We had hoped, we were we had fingers crossed and we had hoped that we might be able to do something, but uh, not so. So it's going to be virtual this year and we're going to be broadcasting from the studios in Cork and uh, it's going to be a very exciting night. We have a great agenda lined up, so um, yeah, we're looking forward to it. We need a bit of good news. When is it on? It's on Wednesday, the 2nd of June in the evening time at 7 o'clock. We're kicking off and we have a great lineup of, uh, we have a wonderful speaker called Christine Armstrong and she wrote the book, The Mother of All Jobs. And Keith Cunningham is our MC and we will have all our sponsors and our finalists and hopefully all our members there as well. So are nominations closed now or can people still put nominations in? No, so the judging process, the nominations closed and the judging process is complete. So now we have 25 finalists who will go forward and we will be discovering then on the night who the winners in each category is. Mm. So we have eight categories and an overall winner. Obviously, you know, you can't not focus on the effect of pandemics on business. So that's obviously been all taken into account. Absolutely. So, I mean, we understand, as we did last year, that the pandemic had and has and still having an effect on people and their businesses. So that is taken into account. But we've also had a special um, category that we introduced last year and we called it the power within. And it's really not necessarily based because we understand that some people's businesses have closed. So it's really to recognise people who have really been resilient, who have managed to pick themselves up and brush themselves off and have really shown um, that strength to just get through this in whatever way they can. Yeah, because people have had to, I suppose, look to their resilience and look to their own resources more than ever. Absolutely. Um, and that has been our team, actually, this year. Um, last year, I think, was really a, a knee-jerk and, and how can we support our members? How can we wrap around them? What do they need? This year, we really focused on building that resilience and coming out of this. So our, our team is, is bounce forward. So we're not bouncing back. We are bouncing forward. How do we come out of this having learned all the lessons that we have learned? And I think there have been a lot of lessons learned. Do you think it will strengthen us for future times? 
I really believe that it does. Um, I think, you know, the studies show that when people go through a hard time, that they, their experience gives them strength and knowledge. And I think, I think it will shape a very different country and a very different world um, in some ways. I really hope that we won't just go back into, you know, the rat race that, that some people have been on, but that we'll take into account a lot of the things that we've learned. So the importance of community and the importance of supporting community has, one of, has been one of those big lessons for us and appreciating our, our countryside and the places that, that we live. Mm. A lot of people have said, you know, I went for a walk in this place and I've lived here 20 years and I never went there before. Yeah. So those kinds of things I hope will shape um, whatever comes next. We, we all have kind of stood back and taken a, a cold hard look at ourselves and, and what we actually value. We were discussing values on the programme last week. The kind of things that are we thought were important aren't really important anymore and the things that we didn't pay attention to, we should perhaps have paid a lot more attention to. That doesn't just apply in, in everyday life, that applies to a business. It does, it does. And what you what you will find, um, and I'm an executive coach, so I work in organisations with people, and what I'm seeing is that people are re-evaluating the way that they work, um, and that's men and women, you know. Um, people want to spend more quality time, they want to maybe focus on their families more. And, and, you know, when we're up and running and we're going and we're going, we often forget those things. Um, and so what I'm seeing now is that people are looking for that um, more holistic balance that, you know, we, we are, you know, not living to work and um, that we're really trying to find a little bit more time to enjoy those things, as you've mentioned, and to really live closer to our values. Finally, tell me a little bit about Network Cork. How long are you around now? You're growing every year. We are indeed. Network Cork is, is, is one of the oldest branches of Network Ireland. We've been around for more than 30 years and we really have a very broad spread, spread of members. So it's not just women in business on their own. We have established businesses. We have employees. Um, we have people who are in the, in the STEM area. We have people who are professionals in their creative space. So people who are, you know, artists and um, part of the arts. Um, so we're very broad based. And I suppose our, our ethos is really to support our members, but also to help them to collaborate with each other because we're a networking uh, organization. So to meet each other and to support each other. And, you know, we have monthly events um, that we that we put on every month in terms of, you know, bringing the skills to our members to help them to run businesses or to be better in their jobs or to lead better and so on. Mm. Um, but also, um, I think it's very important to us to show, to lead by example and to show people how to maybe manage their lives and their businesses and their jobs better. And the overall winner on the 2nd of June, they go forward to a national final, don't they? They do indeed. So it'll be, um, all of the, the winners will go through to the national and it will be very um, um, prestigious, I suppose, to be able to see um, somebody across all of the branches. So there are 13 branches across the whole country. Um, so it'll be um, it'll be a very exciting event. And I think it will also be very uplifting because I feel at the moment we need some good news and we need to celebrate what we have come through and how we have come through it. You know, no matter if it didn't look very pretty or whatever, it doesn't matter. The fact is that we are still uh, coming through it and working through it and mm. that needs to be celebrated. And can anybody watch your award ceremony on the 2nd of June? Absolutely. So members and non-members are all welcome and you will find the link on Eventbrite and we are using the opportunity to raise some money for a Cork charity called Manaw Fassa uh, who support 
women who have been affected by domestic violence um, and they're a Cork organisation so we're hoping to raise some money for them as well. Okay, good luck with it uh, on the 2nd of June. That's Barbara Nugent, President of Network Cork Ireland. Uh, Tickets available online, it's virtual, for that event on the 2nd of June and Eventbrite is where you'll find the tickets and as they say, they're supporting Manafasa. Uh, with their event. 1850-715-996. On WhatsApp, this, this hacking of the HSE is so distressing for cancer patients. My sister travelled miles with her husband for his treatment on Friday. No treatment, no phone call to tell them not to come because they had no details. They travelled a long distance. Bad enough having to deal with the stress of cancer and no knowing what will happen this week. It's all so sad. Might be opportune, actually, on the foot of that particular message to go through again what the various hospitals have been saying to us this morning and the statements that they've been issuing. So CUH, once again, if you have an outpatient's appointment or a chemotherapy appointment or an appointment for surgery, you should come to the hospital unless you're contacted to cancel. The opposite is the case for X-ray. If you have an X-ray appointment, you shouldn't go unless they contact you to come. And all radiotherapy is cancelled at CUH at the moment. At CUMH, all gynae clinics have been cancelled today and tomorrow. Uh, normal IT systems access is very limited, so CUMH or CUH may not have access to records. Labs are severely affected. Existing GP Blood tests won't be processed at this time. Only the emergency ones will be processed. And people should only attend the emergency department in emergency situations. And delays are likely. Uh, South Infirmary say all x-ray appointments for Monday at the South Infirmary cancelled. All other services, people should attend for their appointment as planned. We have a number from Bantry Hospital. They've opened the patient helpline for any queries with regard to Bantry Hospital. And that number is 86 And the updates will be brought to you as often and as frequently as we get them. And there's all the detail is on the 96FM website in our news section. Here's a strange text, although I can see why someone would be concerned about it. PJ, will the HSE issues affect the vaccination callback system? My colleagues and I are due a callback for a second jab. Thanks. I'm assuming that you are a health service worker or connected in some way and that what you're telling me is that you've had your first AstraZeneca appointment and are waiting on your second simple answer to that is my friend I do not know and I'm sorry that I don't because I know if you get a Pfizer injection or a Moderna you get your little card with your date on it like I've had my first one uh, my first Pfizer and I am um, got a date for my second it's written on my piece of, uh, of card so I'm assuming this is a person in the health service who they got an AstraZeneca and then we had all the hassle about the AstraZeneca and all the worry about the AstraZeneca. So their second injection, a lot of them don't know yet when it's going to happen. My honest answer to that is I cannot tell you, but if anyone can tell us, then we'd love to hear from you at 1850-715-996. Now we're, we're just a few weeks away 
or a couple of weeks away from the opening of restaurants. And look, it'll be outdoors. Uh, there is a campaign on. We listened to uh, Paul Trevor last week about the plan. Uh, his campaign is try and get everybody open indoors, same time as the hotels and same day as the hotels. And look, that will pan out as it pans out. I, I don't know what's going to happen with it. But at the moment, all the restaurants get to open uh, on the 7th of June, but it will be outside. And obviously, they'll, they're open for bookings now. Um, and one thing that always annoys people in restaurants, and annoys me when I see it happening to restaurants, is booking a table. In the best of times, booking a table and then not showing up is just plain ignorance. But in these times, booking a table and not showing up is just being, being an arse, basically. But one way around it might be to take deposits. And uh, Kev Hearn, who's the owner of Sage and the chef in Sage in Middleton. Kev, good morning to you. Good morning. How are things? Good. Now, are you taking bookings at the moment? Yeah, booking a table. Isn't it, isn't it great to hear those words? Isn't that fantastic? Yeah, you know. Uh, we are we're taking bookings at the moment. Um, I suppose, like, the most important thing is, like, with these booking deposits, like, we are taking booking deposits, but it's important for people to understand we're not trying, no one's going to try and alienate anybody by taking a booking deposit. We're mm. not, you're not going to be charged for a case of you can't show. The only reason we're trying to put in booking deposits is that, Unfortunately, unfortunately, there's a minority, and I mean a minority, only a very small amount of people that are they're double booking, triple booking. They're not cancelling their reservations. And, you know, they don't have the, the respect and they don't have the gall just to ring you, pick up the phone and say, look, guys, we're not going to make it. Yeah. You know, in, in that retrospect, somebody should be charged a cancellation policy that's agreed prior to their booking, made on your reservation, on the terms and conditions. And once you sign off on that, if you don't cancel your booking, you're charged a nominal fee. And I, I think that's perfectly fair, and I, I, I don't see an issue with it. Is it a fee um, per head, Kev, or what is it? Um, you would be charged a cancellation fee for the table. I think I think a fee per head would be quite difficult to charge on that because you'd have to put a flat rate on it. But I think just that it's just it. Listen, I have, I have had this cancellation policy now for for over a year now. I know right. we've been closed for a lot of it, but we were open for a little bit of summer and Christmas. I charged it once only once, over, mm. over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of bookings. Mm. Only ever charged at once. So if I was to call you and look to book a table and you'll you'll give me the booking and then do you, yeah. what, do you take a card number off me or something? So it goes through, yeah. So it, look, there's, there's different service providers that will, are, are fully uh, motivated that do this, do this for you and it's perfectly legitimate and it's, it's safe as well, which is also very important. You know, I'm not saying as the restaurant owner that we're going to be holding your booking details and your credit card details. That won't happen if you go through another service provider. So basically, they, it's kind of like a holding deposit. Um, you're not charged at the time. They hold hold your credit card details. And then if we issue then the, the cancellation fee, or then at that point you're charged. You're not mm. charged prior to your booking. That's a bit like actually, and this has happened to me on Booking.com, for example, that if you book a hotel or a guest house room, 100%. They take maybe one fifty or two euro off your credit card, and that's a holding fee. And then if yep. you don't, if you don't show up, it's very clear what you'll be charged. Yeah, exactly. And as I said, look, it's not, it's not like it's not. Uh, I'm trying to put out as a deterrent. And I think it's important that we're keeping a really positive attitude around us opening back up at the moment. You know, inside, outside, and everybody else in restaurants, pubs, everything opening back up. I'm going to keep a positive spin on it. So it's not trying to be negative about getting booking deposits in. It's just the fact of protecting, I suppose, 
protecting us as restaurants and bars with serving food and everything else going forward that we're not left with empty tables yeah. on a busy period. We've, been, we've had our tables empty for long enough. We want to see bums on seats and we okay. want people out enjoying themselves and we don't want a negative atmosphere around it. So sure. it's just a case of prevention rather than cure. Oh, yeah. Simple as that. Child. It makes, makes absolute, absolute sense. Kevin, how do you feel about the, the whole idea that hotels can be open and serving indoors days a week before before you guys can and you have to have it all outdoors yeah look as I said I, I prefer to keep things on a positive spin uh, those decisions have been made already they're not going to change so I think at this point unfortunately we're going to have to focus on going forward yeah. not what's after happening um, it's not ideal obviously enough but look it's after happening someone's after making a decision on it we have <laughs> to live with it but we are we are weeks weeks away from all of us being open inside and outside. So I think you know we can spend these weeks looking forward to opening, spending these last couple of weeks having those extra few hours off because we won't have them in the future, um, and we will be open in a couple of weeks. Hopefully not too long. Hopefully it won't be months, but we will all be open soon. And I'd just like to keep a positive yeah. and and look forward to that fact of been open and trading fully. Okay, Kim, good, good to talk to you. Thanks very much. That's Kevin Hearn from Sage in Middleton. Taking a deposit with bookings. Here's one to throw to you. Are you okay with that idea? That you ring up a restaurant, it could be any restaurant, and say, listen, I want a table for Saturday night outside <laughs> for four people. They say, okay, I need a card detail from you, and there's a booking deposit, and if you don't show, there's a fee. Are you okay with that? Because I think that's absolutely good practice. I don't see why you wouldn't do that because I've had so many people tweet during the year. You see the tweets. I had a booking for 10, I had a booking for 15, a booking for 20, and they never showed. Like, doing that in a good time is ignorant. Doing it at times like this is just disgraceful. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With dairy-made premium spread, 100% natural, and made in Cork using West Cork cream. The lines are live. And we're ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 1850-715-996. Text or WhatsApp 083-396-9696. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM. Tom says I would fully approve of restaurants taking deposits. People who don't show up are scutting. Scutting of the highest order. I'm a retired secondary school principal. Various people would book a child in and then also book them into a number of schools. The shadow bookings screwed the whole thing up. We would find a number of students had gone to another school. And I presume those vacancies left unfilled and the whole thing was a mess. Thanks, Tom. Some people would object to paying a deposit for a restaurant. You call up, look, I want a table for Saturday and I want it for six people. Right, that's going to cost you, for argument's sake, a 20 euro booking deposit. And give me your card, please. And if you don't show up, then whatever. Some people would have an objection to that. I personally have no objection to that. In the wide earthly world, none that ever was. Because it is the rudest thing you could possibly do to book a table, particularly in times like this, book a table and not turn up. As, as Kevin said in Sage, you book the table and you don't show up, then he'll charge you. But if you book the table and ring and say, listen, I'm afraid I can't make it, then there's no charge. 
it's not about that. If you just can't show up, you genuinely cannot turn up or you genuinely cancel, then there's no charge. But if they're sitting waiting for you and your five buddies at four o'clock in the day or six o'clock in the evening and you don't show up, then bang, gone off your card. Only rightly so. Or am I wrong? If I'm wrong, then tell me. At 1850-715-996. On second doses, Anne says, I got Pfizer, first jab, Saturday. No second date on the card. They said, we'll get a text in about four weeks. Maybe they're doing it differently in the vaccination centres. I got mine in my... GP. Uh, Caller says, I had my first Moderna vaccine around three or four weeks ago in Parky Cueve. I was told I would be called back. I haven't heard back from anybody yet. That's interesting now because it is four weeks with Pfizer and four, I think, as well with Moderna. And a lot of people getting a second date uh, when they have their first injection. My mom, for example, got her first injection and had the date written on the card and she was leaving. I've had the same. I know a lot of people have had the same. Um, but clearly, not everybody. If you go to a vaccine clinic, it may be it may be different. I wonder, for example, when the teacher got his first dose last week in City Hall, did he get a date for his second one? Was it AstraZeneca he got? I think it was. That's a long way away. But you know yourself. I went for a walk in Fitzgerald's Park, says Mary, one evening last week, Thursday or Friday, I'm not sure which. I'm immunocompromised, so I don't go at peak times. It was raining, but I didn't mind. The public toilet there was a disgrace. There's an area that's covered and there was a group of college students drinking, having a massive session, music blaring. Then down on Paul Street, there was an army of people with boxes of beer. Maybe there's a case for the young people to be vaccinated. I've also heard that young Cork people are renting in the area for the summer and their parents are funding that. Have they no cop on? Well, on the subject of young people being vaccinated and younger groups being vaccinated... It's something that has come up in my latest conversation with Dr. John Campbell. To remind you again, Dr. John Campbell is a retired nurse and a retired nurse lecturer who, about a year and a bit ago, started doing a daily video talk on YouTube with regard to the vaccine, with, well, at the time, just the virus, uh, how a pandemic works, how to interpret the data, how to look at various information from all around the world and how to make a a decision, a scientific decision based on data. And John has amassed over a million followers now on YouTube for his videos, which go up generally one a day. Sometimes maybe he might take a day off midweek, but generally he puts up a video once a day and it might be 20 minutes, it might be 40 minutes, it might be an hour, but it's always fascinating. And he is generally... He is days, if not weeks, ahead of the main media in reporting on things. And for the last couple of weeks, John has been doing a lot of work with regard to the Indian variant of COVID-19. And we've all seen the tragic pictures from India. We've spoken to people in India about it and how dreadful that situation is. John, by the way, maintains that India won't peak for at least another week, possibly two. So it's just getting worse and worse and worse there. But he's been doing a lot of work on his YouTube channel about the possibility of the Indian variant of COVID-19 getting out of control in other parts of the world. And we know that that Indian variant is here in Ireland now because Killian de Gascoon from the National Viral Lab and from Neffet confirmed it at the weekend that indeed we do have the Indian variant of COVID-19 in this country. So... I said it was about time to catch up once again. 
with our friend Dr. John Campbell. John, good to speak with you again. You too, PJ. Over the weekend, it emerged that there are over 40 confirmed cases of this Indian variant in this country now. Now, I know there's more than one, and I don't want to overcomplicate it, but you've been doing quite a lot of work on your channel about the worry of the variants in India. Mm. Should Mm -hmm. we be concerned at the levels? Well, I'm I'm afraid there is cause for concern, actually, PJ, on this one, because um, in in England at the moment, we've got over 1,300 officially confirmed cases. And the variant we're worried about is this B1617.2. So there's three of them. There's the original B1617. Then there's the 0.1.2 and point three mm. and it's the point two one which seems to be most transmissible now the reason i was first concerned about this is oh it's good good four or five weeks ago now basically i saw what it was doing to india mm. so so I, I know that india took quite a lot of precautions in the first wave back in back in 2020 and that th- they fared reasonably well uh, and then when they they uh, liberated the precautions and, and things were freer again the numbers stayed fairly low but then all of a sudden this started going up and that's what made me think this probably had a biological cause so yes there was religious festivals yes there was political festivals people staying 20 to a room in in religious festivals they were all factors but but that happens every year in india these religious festivals are routine so i suspected there was a biological cause that's why i was worried about it but unfortunately flights from india to the united states europe all over were only stopped at a very late stage. In fact, they're not stopped now. They just have hotel quarantine. I'm not quite sure what you're doing in Ireland. But well, we we have no direct flights from India, but but we do have India now on the quarantine list. Yeah. Mm, yeah. So, it, 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 but again, you know, it, it's bolting the door after the horse is bolted. Really, it's it's been typical of the lack of proactivity there's been. So we react to situations rather than anticipate it. Um, this this variant now is is probably in about 44 countries unfortunately and uh, Ireland is one of them and other European countries and the problem is it's growing very quickly so we have this exponential growth where it starts off small but then it grows very quickly and it seems the doubling time in the UK well in England particularly actually at the moment is about seven days so basically we have twice as many as we did seven days ago now at the moment it's in clusters there's about 40 clusters around about the uk and it's now confirmed we now know that this india variant is spreading more quickly than say the uk variant the b117 which is the 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 current prevalent variant in ireland and in and in the uk and initially john our concern with the british variant to give it that name Mm. was its transmissibility are you saying that the indian one is even more transmissible again yes That, that that's that's exactly what we're saying so the, 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 the UK Kent variant was more transmissible than the previous variant. Therefore, it outcompeted it. Therefore, it became the dominant variant. This Indian variant is more transmissible again. So even more transmissible than the B117 Kent UK variant. This is the concern. So it looks like this India variant will become, it's likely now that this will become the predominant variant because it's, it's this is simple evolution, PJ. It's the survival of the fittest and this is reproducing and spreading more readily than the other variants so it, it will outcompete the, the other variants. Now, the, the, there is good news here. The good news is that the vaccines that we have do seem to be protecting against 
severe disease hospitalizations and therefore we would assume deaths mm. um the vaccines that we have now are going to reduce the transmissibility of the india variant somewhat but not reduce the transmissibility as much as um for example the, the uk variant so we are probably going to get more spread even amongst vaccinated people unfortunately mm. and it may also people that have been vaccinated may get mild disease with the india variant but they're very unlikely to get severe disease mm. so this is this is kind of it's a mix of good news and bad news and of course for example I, i'm fortunate now I, i've had two doses of vaccine and i believe are you on one now or two doses i've had one myself you've had one yeah a lot of my colleagues have had one as well yeah yeah so if we it, like if i well i've got another week to go i've only had it for a week we have to wait for a good two weeks after the second dose but you do have some immunity now but if i were to get the india variant say in in three weeks time and got mild disease that would give me a bit of an immune boost mm. so 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 the, the key thing is that we need people vaccinated in the communities now the uk government has just made quite a major change we've gone from uh 12 weeks in between the primer dose and the booster dose of the vaccine down to 8 weeks mm. in the over 50s now the reason that we've done that is of course the older you are the, the greater you are at risk so the old the over 50s are are at greater risk and because reading between the lines i think the government in the uk is expecting this india variant to spread around the country perhaps fairly quickly now and in a sense that's bad but in in a sense it doesn't matter too much as long as it doesn't make people sick and kill us mm. so 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 they are giving people the extra protection that the second vaccine offers at an earlier stage so that more people will have the second vaccine well they're still on on, on Pfizer and Moderna John here they're still on 4 weeks and and the second dose is still 4 weeks away they they looked at maybe extending it but they haven't made a decision in that just yet analyzing our data which i've been doing uh, for my listeners in terms of the daily case numbers that we have now so if you take say last friday we had 400 and something cases but over yep. over 80% of those cases are in the age cohort below 45 and yes. the median within that is 28 so Yes. It's very young people mostly are getting affected with new cases at the moment because of the way our vaccine program is working. Would you be concerned for those younger cohorts spreading the Indian variant around the country? Well, I think that's exactly what's going to happen. Um older people that have been vaccinated will still be transmissible to some extent, but much less than people that aren't vaccinated. So the younger group that aren't vaccinated, now in England, Scotland, um Wales, Northern Ireland, that's going to be under 40s primarily. So we're vaccinating 38, 39, 40 year olds now. Um but of course there's a big delay. So people in the 50s now are still waiting the 3 weeks. Uh, before they get any any effect any benefit from the vaccine kicking in at all is there a case to be made for and this was a big discussion point politically here a week or two ago is there a case to be made for starting now at the other end and working up so working down from the older people and maybe starting in with the 18 19 20 year olds particularly yeah. with something like Johnson and Johnson that's just one injection and trying to bring the two together is there a case to be made for that 
Yes, there is. And some countries have gone that way. And in fact, there's a bit of a tendency towards that now in the UK. So uh, in England now, they're transferring more vaccine supplies to places like Bolton to vaccinate particularly people that are at risk. Now, at the moment, we're still vaccinating according to age categories. But other countries, for example, the Philippines, uh, Indonesia as well, I think, that they've said, well, no, we're not. And China have done this. We're not looking so much at who's most at risk. What we want to do is vaccinate those that are doing most of the transmission so that we can get this pandemic over quickly. Mm. Um, So there's two views there. So um, Ireland, Ireland and the UK at the moment are both taking the age stratified approach, protecting the most vulnerable. But. Because they're now partly protected, it's the younger age group that are going to be spreading this around. Now, I don't know what the regulations are like in Ireland at the moment. We're having a major opening up in uh, in England, for example. So it's it's absolutely guaranteed there's going to be an increase in cases. We've started opening up. We're at a, an early stage as of the 17th. Today yep. we have retail returning. We have a bit more movement. We still don't have hospitality open, except for takeaway. We're supposed to go to outdoor dining and outdoor pubs on the 7th of June and hotels opening on the 2nd of June. That seems to be the plan at the moment. Would you be wary with the Indian variant spreading? Well, the, the, the SAGE committee, the Scientific Advisory Group for Emergencies in the UK, have clearly said that that the virus is spreading with the current restrictions. So when there's opening up on the 17th of May in England and then the 21st of June, there there will be more spread. And they put levels of certainty on how sure they are about these predictions. And for that one, they put it down as high certainty, that, that they are sure this is going to happen. Now, what's the sort of vaccination status like, PJ, in the moment in, 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 uh, in Ireland generally? About 2 million doses or slightly over 2 million doses given out and around about 30% of the adult population uh, down into the groups of the mid-60s and now they're in the 50s vaccinated. Yeah, because obviously the fewer people that are vaccinated, the more people are going are going to get sick from this from this variant. Now, so far, there's no evidence that it's making people sicker. But of course, if you get many people getting ill at the same time and still only say four or five, six percent of them need hospitalized, that could put significant strain on the health services, even if it's not more pathogenic, even if it's not making people mm. iller. And so far, that, that does appear to be the case. So what I'm really worried about, and as, of course, India is the perfect example of this. You know, it, India has actually given a first dose of its vaccine to only about 10, 11% of the population, and only about 3, 3, 3.5%, 4% are fully vaccinated. Therefore, the many people are prone to this. Many people are prone to getting sick from this new variant, and they are. And they're all getting sick at the same time. Therefore, they can't get into hospital. Therefore, people are dying through simple uh, lack of oxygen. Now, I'm, I'm not saying this is going to happen in Ireland mm. or, or, the, or the UK. I, I don't believe it is. But it, it seems to me, unfortunately, inevitable that the India variant is going to increase in prevalence in Ireland. That means the overall case numbers will go up. So the overall case numbers, the overall numbers of people getting positive diagnosis is going to go up, driven by the more transmissible India variant. And a proportion of those are still going to get sick. Therefore, unfortunately, and I hope I hope I really hope I'm wrong, 
But unfortunately, I do see hospitalizations going up in countries like Ireland where vaccination is uh, not at the numbers we would like it to be. And if you were advising our leaders in terms of what they should do with the vaccinations, would you be suggesting get started on the young folk? You need to look at where there is most transmission going on. If they can identify particular age groups or particular activities that are infection drivers, then there is an argument for targeting those. Now, whether you target them with vaccination or whether you target them with non-pharmacological interventions like hands, face, space and ventilate is really is really up for debate. I think I think there's a couple of important things to mention. The, the vitamin D thing, Ireland is doing well, very well on that, way, way ahead of England on that. Delighted to see the, uh, the, the reports on that in Ireland. I think we've all been taking more, John, since I spoke to you on the programme <laughs> a couple of weeks ago. I, I, I think you've done a great job there, PJ, and, and that, that, will make, that will make a difference. I, I believe the evidence suggests that people that would have got severely ill might get mildly ill, or people that would get mildly ill will get very mildly ill, or even be asymptomatic as a result of that. And of course, the other thing, it's summer now. Well, okay, it's not that warm here now, but open the doors, open the windows. You know, ventilation mm. is key. And, and these things can offset the increased transmissibility of this India variant. But we are unfortunately dealing with a different biological specimen at the moment. That is, that is my concern. So uh, unfortunately, all these countries with reduced vaccines, we are going to see, mm. I believe, uh, I believe we're going to see increasing cases and some hospitalizations. Finally, you did some more work recently. We talked about it before on ivermectin. Still, yes. a lot of resistance to actually rolling it out. There is, and it's a very complicated one. We have to be very careful, you and me, that we don't advise people to take medicines. Mm. This is this is for information. Like, like we said before, we want nobody taking their dog's warming tablets. You know? No, no, absolutely not. But um, there are human doses of ivermectin available. It's on the WHO list of essential medications. Uh, in 2015, I think it was, the, the, inv- the discoverers of ivermectin were given the Nobel Prize. This has been a world-changing drug for treating parasitic infections. But now there is pretty good evidence, and I'm actually convinced by the evidence, that it has antiviral properties. Now, and again, there's an accumulation of evidence that ivermectin is preventing um, COVID-19 and is treating COVID-19. So, for example, Goa are using this as a preventative now the state of Goa in, 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 in India. I've talked to Indian doctors and, and they're finding it efficacious in the early stages of the disease. But I've, I've, ta- I've talked to Dr. Pierre Corey in the States. He's found it efficacious in later stages of the disease. I've talked to, to Dr. Tess Laurie, who's done a sophisticated meta-analysis that I don't pretend to understand on this. And when people of this calibre are saying, look, there is something here, we believe this is working then it's not for me to say it's working or not. I'm, I'm just a YouTube commentator uh, and a retired nurse lecturer. But, but I, I think there is sufficient evidence, like the Irish government has done with vitamin D, for chief medical officers and governments to say, look, this evidence for ivermectin, we don't accept it. But stand up and say that publicly. Or say, look, there's evidence for ivermectin here. We're accepting this. Because people always say they want large-scale randomised clinical trials. Well, of course we do. 
But we, we don't have randomized clinical trials on the efficacy of parachutes in people falling out of airplanes. We don't have randomized controlled trial on blood gushing out of femoral arteries in accident emergency departments, but we still know you've got to stop the bleeding. You know, we can't have clinical trials on everything. And of course, clinical trials are expensive and there's not a lot of financial motivation really to do this mm. on ivermectin because it's now a generic drug. This basically costs nothing, PJ. Mm. You know, it's cheaper than Paris. It's as cheap as paracetamol. You know, it, it, it's very, very cheap. The problem, I think, is that people that want to promote vaccines, rightly, because this is the way out of the pandemic, think if, if we have ivermectin, people won't take the vaccines. Mm. But heck, I want every tool I can get. I want vaccination and I want to treat people that are real and I want uh, a short term prophylaxis as well if I can get it. So what I would just say to conclude on that is I think there's enough evidence being presented that governments need to pronounce on this, yes or no. And the, the ball is really in their courts. And I think for governments not to pronounce on this now is uh, is unacceptable because the evidence is sufficient to, to ask the question in clear, loud terms. John, it's always a pleasure to have you on The Opinion Land. Thank you once again. PJ, pleasure. He doesn't hold back, does he? He doesn't mince his words. That's Dr. John Campbell, you'll find his YouTube channel. Just search Dr. John Campbell. He's got a million or close to a million subscribers. In actual fact, what he's done is he has rebroadcast that interview uh, on his YouTube channel uh, in the last few hours. Um, So there's a million listeners to that particular interview. 1850-715-996. The Indian variant, we need to be careful. No cause for panic we need to be careful and the very best way to stop it spreading and stop it spreading like wildfire is to get more jabs into more arms and what he's thinking with regard to ivermectin and I was one of the people that he brought on board with regard to ivermectin because three months ago I said that's an animal drug you give it to your dog for worms or you give it to something that's an animal drug what's that about having looked at the research and looked at John's videos and seen the interviews he's done with people who know this stuff you know what? There's a lot to be said for Ivermectin. 1857 15996. The foundation of self-care which is getting a good night's sleep and there's no doubt that many people nowadays are sleep deprived and when you're sleep deprived not only are you increasing your risk of diabetes and depression and even long-term memory loss and dementia but if you get a bad night's sleep tonight then tomorrow you're going to feel more irritable, more stressed and you're going to crave more calories. So getting a good night's sleep, investing in your sleep is so, so important for your well-being and if people listening to this were to take one thing on board I would say do what Benjamin Franklin said, early to bed and early to rise makes a man healthy, wealthy and wise. Helping you through COVID. Helping you through COVID. Cork's 96FM. Should we have Michael Collins appearing on the one euro coin or the two euro coin? Well, Councillor Shane O'Callaghan reckons that we should. Shane, good morning. Morning, PJ. How are you? Good. And you're pursuing this through council. Yes. Um, well, it's not just Michael Collins. Um, look, I mean, one of the many tragedies of the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, PJ, is the fact that a lot of the major commemorations uh, that were planned for 2020 and 2021 
uh, you know, to mark the centenary of, of Ireland's struggle for independence have had to be either scaled down or postponed or, or cancelled altogether. And that's why, you know, it's all the more important to find other ways of marking, you know, the centenary of our struggle for independence and the establishment of a, an independent Irish state. And that's why I submitted a motion to Cork City Council uh, proposing that the City Council call upon the government, uh, particularly the Taoiseach Tánis, the Minister of Finance, Minister for Transport, to consider changing the, the design of the national side of Irish euro, uh, one euro coins, two euro coins mm. and 50 cent coins from the, the Brian Brew Harp, which is on all of our coins, the national side of all of our coins at the moment, to the images of not just Michael Collins, but Michael Collins, uh, Constance Markovich and James Connolly. Right. Um, those three. I, well, I think, PJ, those three people um, all played a vital role in the struggle for Irish independence. And at the same time, they represent different the different traditions of Irish society. Mm. Um, James Connolly was a Republican socialist and feminist. As you know, he's one of the signatures of the proclamation of the Irish Republic, one of the 1916 leaders. And look, he's widely revered, but I would I'd say he's particularly revered by Sinn Féin and the Labour Party. Mm. Um, Constance Markovich was, look, you know, in terms of breaking glass feelings, I mean, she, she did it all, really. She was the first uh, woman MP ever elected to the Westminster Parliament, prominent in 1916 Rising War of Independence. Mm. And she took part of the anti-treaty side in the Civil War. And look, she's, again, particularly, she's revered as a role model for women and, and uh, mm. Irish society, and particularly by the Fianna Fáil party, I would suggest, because she was a founding member of that party. And then Michael Collins, as you know, in his short life, uh, led the military resistance to British rule, ran the finance and outlawed government, you know, uh, during the War of Independence, and, and I would suggest played the leading role in, a, in a negotiating and establishing an independent uh, Irish state. You know, mm. he's consistently voted in polls as the greatest Irish man that ever lived, and he is, he is particularly revered by those of us in the Fine Gael mm. Party. So, How about Patrick Pierce, is, though? It's, it's a, an exclusion. Well, I suppose... I mean, like, I, I, I'm just suggesting three coins and that the rest uh, remain the harp, which is, which is perfectly... Um, the government is able to do that. I mean, other countries, other EU countries, have a different image on every single... Like Italy, you know, for instance, has a different image on every single one of their national coins. Germany have three different images. So it's, it wouldn't be that unusual. I mean, Padraig Pierce, you know, certainly could be someone to be considered as well. But I mean, I was just suggesting three figures mm. um, far now. And I mean, the motion came before the city council uh, meeting last week. And after a lot of debate, it was passed by 18 votes to seven and three abstentions. Mm. Uh, Fine Gael, Sinn Féin, the Green Party, the Labour Party and most independent councillors voted for it. But then the seven who voted against were Fianna Fáil. Five of Fianna Fáil's councillors voted against it. The other two abstained. Uh, councillor Fiona Ryan voted against it and Kieran McCarthy voted against it. And the circumstance there is you're talking about others. I think Fianna Fáil demanded that I amend the motion so that another coin would have the image of Eamon de Valera on it, and yeah. I, I I declined to do so on the yeah. basis. Yeah, you can you can see you can see how to turn into a bit of a, a bit of a bun fight between who should be on and who should. Where does I it go mean, from here now, Shane? But your but your PJ, like my, my point was that Con- Constance Markovich was a member of Fianna Fáil, and you know mm. one member of Fianna Fáil is is, is sufficient. <laughs> but that you know what I mean. I, I thought you were going to say for a second one too many, but anyway, yeah, 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 but, <laughs> no, but seriously, I, I, where where does it go? Where does it go from here now? Well, basically. Um, Letters from Cork City Council will, will now be, if they haven't already, been, will be sent to Michal Martin, Leo Radgar, Pascal Dunhu, and Eamon Ryan asking for the government to consider the proposal. 
and it's of the of the city council because it's officially city council proposal now. And if the government decides to adopt it, it'll happen. Okay. Because I mean, I, I don't think the EU have any issue with what images are on our national coins. And I think sure, why not change it up a bit, PJ? You know, I well, mean, we'll, I, I, we'll, I we'll certainly happens. see where it goes, and we'll certainly follow it with interest. So the first stage. Uh, is is achieved, and we'll see where it goes. Thank you, Councillor Shane Callahan, the uh, Finnegal, uh, Michael Collins, Constance Markovic, and uh, James Connolly on our Euro coins. Quickly before we finish today, we have about twenty minutes to go. Throw me a text at oh eight three three ninety six ninety six ninety six. If you could pick one person in all of Irish history, all of them, who you'd like to put on a coin, who would it be? One person in all of Irish history you could put on a coin, who would it be? Just throw me their name and we'll read some of them out between now and quitting time. 1850-715-996 The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM With Dairy Made Premium Spread 100% natural and made in Cork using West Cork Cream So anybody you think we should pop on a coin just for the fun of it you know yourself. Uh, who would it be? Anyone in history, who would it be? Someone saying, can we not have somebody modern on those coins. Well, if you have a suggestion, send it in to me at 083 396 96 Just on John Campbell. Well, PJ, didn't Dr. John show up your opinions on the likes of Ivermectin? I thought it was all a conspiracy. I never said that Ivermectin was a conspiracy. I said that I had my doubts that there was any science behind Ivermectin because it's an animal drug. John Campbell is a very, very highly experienced and very, very professional individual who has analysed the data. He now says there's a very solid case for the effectiveness or possible effectiveness of ivermectin. So when it comes from someone like John Campbell, I'm prepared to take it on board. When it comes from someone like Spotty John in his basement computer, scratching his, you know, I'm not, sorry. 1850-715-996 like everyone should be I'm careful of where I take my science from conversation over the weekend actually in my house I was popping some stuff yes in those little bits of sunshine I put a barbecue on and of course there's a lot of meat involved and which means there's some cutting involved And I mentioned that I was having this chap on the show today talk about the various kind of knives that you need in the kitchen and which I yeah, sure it is. A knife is a knife. There's a sharp one, and a blunt one, and a serrated one, and one for meat, and one for bread, and one for fruit, and one for vegetables, and one for peeling the spuds. And that's kind of where it begins and ends. But it's not, is it, Jack O'Keefe? Good morning to you. That's a beautiful accent to hear now when you're working in Dublin. That's a, that's a, that's a sound of home right there. <laughs> Good man yourself. It's not the same, though, is it? No, they're not. Look, there's horses for courses, as they say. Um, look, at home in the home cook, one really good knife will do you, in fairness. But here in the professional world, just like a builder, if you're building a house, you're not going to plaster a wall with a hammer. Now, saying that, my father, who owns the construction company, has seen me do some random things with a hammer. And I've made it work-ish. But no, with knives, you need the right knife for the, the right job. Um, normally enough, like we would use a knife called a chef's knife. And that's your classical shape for watching TV or if you're watching Jamie Oliver, Gordon Ramsay, you'll always see him using the same kind of knife in their hand. And it's generally like a 10 to 12-inch knife that mm. has a nice angle on it, and you can do a nice rocking motion. And the, the idea of that knife is mainly for safety and ergonomics, that you don't lop your fingers off, you're not, you're not going 
smash, 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 chop, chop, chop. You're kind of rocking through stuff. Mm. And yes, there's loads of different kinds of knives. There's thousands. And you can go down this rabbit hole on YouTube obsessing about knives in every single culture. So like in French cookery, we have a set of knives. In Japanese culture, they have a completely different set of knives. In Chinese culture, they have a different set of knives. And it goes on and on like that. So mm. like, really do- You need a different set of knives, don't you, if you're dealing with fish than you are with meat? Or, or do you? Not really, look at Nowadays, like steel is so advanced and the blades are so sharp that you can get multi-purpose or what we'd refer to as a utility knife. So when we started in college in CIT, we were given a beautiful little brown canvas roll and it only had about four knives in it. And now at this stage, I God, I must have about 35 or so. Now, some of them are duplicates, you know, you just kind of collect them over time. But realistically, you only need three or four. Like, as I always say to friends of mine when they're moving into their first house and they're moving away from mammy and they're learning to cook, they're like, oh, what kind of knife do I get? And I just said, look, get, go online, get your three knives, that's it. Get your chef's knife, your serrated knife for chopping bread, and maybe get a small peeling knife. Because, mm. look, the home cook is never going to be taking apart an entire fish, especially if you live in Cork. It's an absolute shame if you're taking apart your own fish. Go into the English market. Pat O'Connor will do it yeah. all for you. He'd do it all for you, and he'd be more than happy to do it for you. And he'll give you the bones so that you can go home and make the stocks. So you're not wasting any yeah. any element of the fish. You know yourself, and he's going to do it right, and he's not going to slice his finger off doing mm. it, where you could slice your finger off doing so, it. So where do you get them from, Jack? If you're down to the chef's knife, the paring knife, and the, and, and the utility knife, where do you get them from? Because if you walk into a hardware store, there's a hundred different boxes. Yeah, so what I always do is, look, look you can go online. You, you use your, your big retailers, like your Amazon, etc., TK Maxx always has a great selection of knives as well. No, but however, I do like to support local. And when I'm home in Cork, I always make it my business. Well, sorry, let me say, I used to make it my business to head to Brennan's on Oliver Plunkett Street and treat myself to a knife. And unfortunately, they're not around anymore. So I always head to down French Church Street. There's a lovely little cookware shop down there. Stunning little cookware shop. And my Mrs. Jackie absolutely hates it when she sees me walking in there because she says, he's gone now for the day. That's him. <laughs> like, what am I looking at in terms of if I want to buy a set of knives, there's half a dozen in front of me. What am I looking for? Look, when you're starting off, you'd want a 9 to 10 inch chef knife, straight, first of all. Then you'd probably want a pairing knife that's about 1 inch long. And then you'd want a serrated knife with teeth on it. And that would be about 13 to 14 inches long. Do not get these big monster knives because they're too dangerous. They're too big. You're wielding a sword like a medieval knife. <laughs> Or like a medieval knight going around the place. You're just going to lop your wrist off. Mm. <laughs> so, like, go into the shop. Talk to the person behind the counter. Especially if it's a specialist, a cookery store. They won't guide you wrong. You won't need to remortgage your house to buy these knives. You're, we're literally talking 20 euro for one of these knives. These, right. are, these aren't the fancy things that you see inside in your, your luxury homeware stores. These are what we would burn through in a few months. But the home cook, they'll last years and years. So you're, the brands you're looking at would be Victorinox. Um, they'd be the makers of the Swiss Army knife. They're right. perfect. They're multi-purpose. They're what we all get in college as a first set. And I still have my college set. Still perfectly fine. And I'm just wondering, like that, like that again now, two things. First of all, how long do you expect them to last? And secondly, should you buy or should you even attempt to sharpen them yourself? What I always used to say when I used to run a cookery school, when I'd see people's knives is, look, yeah, I can, I can spend five to six hours with you showing you how to correctly sharpen a knife. And then you would go home and you'd blow an entire weekend trying to sharpen a knife. Or you can spend hundreds of euro buying uh, automated knife sharpeners. Or you can just go into your local butcher shop if you buy your meat from your local butcher shop, which you should be. He's more than happy to sharpen your knife. Tim McCarthy in Kentork always takes my knives off me and sharpens them for me. Even though I have all the equipment myself, the boys in the butcher shop are 
amazing at it and they have the machinery and they do it in seconds. You go in, you buy a few T-bones, you hand them the knife and say, could you please sharpen this for me? Mm. And they will, within seconds. So that's what I always do. Because you could ruin it yourself. More than I to do it for you as well as in the English market. Yeah, you could ruin it yourself by doing oh, it wrong. Completely, yeah. yeah. If you get the angle wrong on the stone, and it, there's a difference between water stone and oil stones, and it goes on and on and on. Where the butchers, they just, they have a grinder in the back, a diamond stone grinder, and it goes, whoomp, 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 and, they, and then that's it. It's the sharpest knife you'll ever experience in your entire life. You can actually shave with these things after they sharpen up. That's the sharp <laughs> I, I think, I'm not I don't, I don't think I'll be, I can see myself in front of the mirror with these... Okay, okay. I think I'll leave that to the professionals somehow. Exactly. But look, there's some amazing uh, knife makers here in Ireland as well. If you if you want to buy someone an amazing gift, or I can happily tell your listeners my address if they want to send me some gifts of some amazing knife, I'd be more than happy to accept <laughs> them. Would you believe one of the best knife makers, in my opinion, in the world, outside of Japan, is in West Cork? Really? Would you believe that? The base that Mr. Fingal Ferguson based down in Gubin in West Cork, the famous Gubin Smokehouse and Cheese. yes. Gubin, or Fingal, who owns that company, whose parents set it up, Fingal actually sets up, has set up his own knife company. And as far as I remember, I think he has almost a two-year waiting list now. Get away. No, this man is gifted. Go on to his Instagram account, Fingal Ferguson, and you, wait till you see his knives. It, they're just next level. They're, he's been taught and he's learned from the same people whose grandparents used to make samurai swords. I see. <laughs> Good place to start. Jack, thank you very much as always. TV AM chef Jack O'Keefe and of course formerly of Greens in Cork and one of our own, as they say. You need a chef's knife, you need a paring knife and you need a utility knife. And go down to the butcher and they'll sharpen for you. It's simple. You don't need nothing too fussy. And I'll get the name of that fella down in West Cork and I'll tell you again tomorrow who he is. 1850-715-996. Some sad news announced uh, over the weekend. I wasn't aware that he was, well, I knew he wasn't well, but I wasn't aware, unfortunately, that he wasn't going to make it through. Um, Tim Valvey, uh, he was 87, former Lord Mayor of Cork. Uh, He was Lord Mayor in the mid-90s. And I remember him well. And he was a nice old devil. I was fond of him. And you'd meet him many times. I met him at many a function, many an event, many an award ceremony. He just loved to go and socialise with his lovely wife, Boina, who passed away uh, late last year. And, of course, with Pat, his son Pat, uh, the internationally famous explorer and mountaineer. Uh, but Tim died at the weekend, uh, aged 87. His, his GP and long-time friend, uh, Dr. John Sheehan. John, good morning to you. Morning, PJ. He was one of those fellas that broke the mould in every way. He, he certainly was. And, you know, it's a real sadness, really, because Tim and Bynum were very much a team, the two of them. You know, you, as you said, you couldn't but when you met them, have your spirits lifted. They were always in great form. They were really, really warm and welcoming. And really, one of the things that really struck me, PJ, as I had the honour to know them over the last number of years, is the amount of work that they did in the background for people. Charity work, helping people out, just very unassuming, always had the touch, you know, he could be sitting with someone famous, he could be sitting with someone down the road, it didn't matter to Tim and Bina. they were just really, really welcoming, and it's really a sadness around the north side today, just to, you know, as a former Lord Mayor, he was so well regarded, and the thing that I just had the honour really, PJ, of seeing is, he was very foremost a family man, and he was just so close to his family and his kids, to Pat and Barry, and 
a Bynum, a Magellan, the whole lot, all the whole lot of them. And they were just really uh, tight units. So it's a, it's an end of an era for, mm. uh, you know, for, for, for the two of them gone. But I know the two of them are together in a better place, I yeah. suppose, today. I, I would meet Tim at events, you know, dinners and awards ceremonies. He used to go to everything that the, the business awards and he'd go to all sorts. And the one thing I remember and take from, from my memories of him was laughter. You wouldn't be a minute in his presence and you were laughing because he was a fun guy to be around. He was absolutely a fun guy to be around. The two of them really were. They'd always lift your, um, um, lift your spirits. Um, you know, there was just a, an element of welcoming and fun about the, about the two of them. And, and they were really, and the reason I say the two of them, they were very much a team. Where one was, the other usually was, you know. And Tim was a very sharp person as well. He was very astute. He was, you know, he was a good businessman. He was a great politician. I know when I started off, he gave me great support and advice, you know. But really, there was that sense of fun and enjoying life and making the most of everything. And, you know, um, I think particularly the year that's gone in it, I think we could all do well to, to remember that. Yeah. And I was really struck, actually, um, chatting to Pat over the weekend when Pat said, normally in his, his, his career, he would be up the side of a mountain, you know, this time of year. He'd be travelling most of his time. Right. And because of COVID, ironically, he has been around for both, you know, both his parents and wasn't trying to scramble to an airport to get home. And he, he was able to use that time and, you know, spend that time. So, you know, one of the, I suppose, strange effects of COVID is that it did sometimes give people who normally be away traveling, give them that more time to spend, you know, uh, you know, with, with their loved ones. Yeah. One thing I remember about Tim covering him as Lord Bear was that the, the day would be really busy. And he'd have many, and as you know yourself, John, how busy it can be. He'd have many events from morning to night. And sometimes he'd nearly forget what one he was at. But people liked him so much, they didn't care if he forgot. That was part of the fun of it. Absolutely, yeah. And I, I could do well to uh, copy that mold. He just brought so much joy. You know? He did. So even if he forgot something, people would forgive him straight away because it didn't matter. I was at an event one evening and I won't say where, right? But he, he stood up to make, give his few words, you see, and he, he shambles up to the mic and he reaches into the pocket of the jacket and he took out um, a piece of paper and he started to read and he stopped. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Put that back in the jacket and took out, this is the one I needed. <laughs> and only someone like Tim will get away with that. Oh, yeah. And he, got away with he got away with it because that was Tim, you know, that was Tim. Yeah. John, I, I, my condolences on the loss of a man who's no doubt a dear friend to you as well. Yeah, absolutely. He'd be sorely missed uh, across the north side and across the city. Yeah. and by but we know they're together now. Indeed, indeed. The late, the late Tim Falvey, a very, very likeable man. Uh, and a uh, bit of Cork history gone himself and by now. And my thoughts with Pat, of course, who we know well, and the rest of the family on this sad time. Also, we should mention uh, the passing of a great Anne Kelly. I didn't know Anne was... Was, was gone, chair of the Ballypahan Toker Community Development Project and very well known in the community. Everybody knew who Anne was. She was stuck in everything. One of these people, part of her community, stuck in everything. Absolutely everything. And she's gone. And we wish her and her family well. And we wish her family well. 1850-715-996. Well, here's a few suggestions for your coins. Wolf Tone. Uh, Mother Jones. Mary Harris, of course. Ernest Shackleton. 
should be on a coin, says Eugene. Geraldine, how about Sonia O'Sullivan, Katie Taylor, two of the more iconic and inspiring Olympians of all time. Paul and Blarney says, what about Christy Ring? What about Dr. Douglas Hyde, our first president, says Jim. Uh, Terry Lingwood reckons, what about Phil Linnett or Rory Gallagher on our coins? Could we not have someone modern again, says this caller. And Mick chimes in. Mick, we're not an independent state. The Oireachtas is a corporation. It's not Doyle Aaron. I want to set the record straight. Mick, you've been texting me the same thing for the last 10 years. But thank you. <laughs> I'll take one or two more before we go. About a minute left. Anybody else you could put on a coin? Like, what about, well, she's got a bridge. I would have said Mary Elms. But definitely, I, I like the idea of Mother Jones. Or what about Tom Crane? There's Tom. Maybe there's a suggestion. Listen, that's it. We're out of time. The programme edited by Terry Brennan, produced and researched today by Maureen Tuig. We'll see you tomorrow, just after nine. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odour control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.